When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. As we drift into Inherent Vice's second hour, watching all of these complicated strands complicate further by knotting together, we're revealing they were knotted together long before we picked them up, or nodding to things we still can't even see. Well, we're lucky we've got a guy like Doc traipsing through it, all the various plots that cats cradle around us like a web. Or maybe he's just too high to see and is plowing forward in a fog, getting more and more tangled like the rest of us. For all of Thomas Pynchon's tracing of the souring and the downfall of the American fate, from pre-revolution secret doom waiting to devour the 60s and 70s, and how that led to our current tainted now that exists forever and inexhaustible, probably the one thing he didn't predict coming to pass by this nightmare year of our Dark Lord 2020 was that eventually every single movie obsessive would have their own podcast, including one about his only film adaptation, Horror of Horrors. That said, there is one film podcast out there that reigns supreme. And even though I'm probably not supposed to say this on my own show, it is hands down my favorite ongoing film podcast out there. The New Beverly Cinema Presented Pure Cinema Podcast with hosts Brian Sauer and Elric Kane, who are each hosts of the Just the Discs and Shockwaves podcasts, respectively. And this podcast, the Pure Cinema Podcast, has become an essential ongoing conversation and cinephilic resource between these two men, their guests, and their friends about not just the films of the new Bev, but films in general, and the various subgenres and performers and eras therein. And in these odd pandemic times, it is a real lifeline of listening for a movie nerd such as myself. All of which are reasons why. I find myself now staring into the handsome, pixelated faces of Misters Kane and Sauer. Thanks for coming on the show today, fellas. Pleasure, sir. That was incredibly kind. My goodness, my goodness me. <laughs> that, was, that was very awkward. <laughs> I'm already tying it to the scene, don't worry. I, I, I'm Martin shorting you before you get there. So, I must, I, I, And I have to point out that Elric is wearing a t-shirt with the giant looming head of Paul Thomas Anderson right. upon his chest. 
It was a, it was a power move. <laughs> Don't lie. <laughs> uh, it was. It was a power move. All right. Gents, you've explored Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Quentin Tarantino. You've hosted a career retrospective with Michael Madsen, which, my God, my God, my God, anyone who's listening to this, if you haven't listened to that, pause this, go listen to that, then come back and hit unpause. You've interviewed writer-directors Edgar Wright and Ryan Johnson about their favorite genres. Now, though, you've really arrived. Finally <laughs> arrived. Goodness. You're here to talk about Inherent Vice with me. And I just wanted to say congrats. You've made it. Thank you. It's, it's, it's never going to get better than this. It's well, never going to get better than this. I will say, uh, after I watched it, because I, I came to it much later, it's the only PTA film I haven't seen, didn't see in theaters besides uh, Heart Eight because that was before I knew who he was. But every other th film of his I saw in theaters, somehow I missed it. And somehow I heard early word and somehow something in me, it's very unlike me, just somehow put it off and put it off and put it off. And then like, I don't know, it was only about a year ago. I remember, I can't remember what pushed me. And I was like, you know what? I, I got it. Maybe it was once all the stuff around before Once Upon a Time. And then I, and when I watched it, A, I was, you know, kind of floored by the kind of movie it was because maybe I thought it was going to be something else, but it was right after I finished watching it that I read your essay on it and it re on um, Bright, uh, Bright Wall, Dark Light. Is that right? Bright Wall, Dark Light. Am, am I, oh dark, God. What kind of hippie, hippie sighted. I know, it's a pension <laughs> podcast. Chill out. You know? Right, well, dark room. Yeah, Golden Fang podcast, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> but it really, it was, a, it was a great open, it was like a film criticism for me. It's been a while since I always cite the Eyes Which Shut Sight and Sound article, which was one that just like opened the movie up for me completely. Yeah, I like that. I was like, after I read it, I was like, oh, I totally know what this movie was. I felt the same way with your essay. Uh, no, no, I, no, I didn't fully understand what the movie was, but it definitely opened it up in a way that got me excited. And then rewatching it for this just furthered that. So, so, you know, we are linked in that way. <laughs> so there you go. We're bound you and I. Hmm. Yeah. I had a similar scenario. I don't know if I saw it in theater uh, and I can't remember why not. It wasn't a thing I remember really? seeing. Yeah. It's, it's weird. I think it might have something to do with certain kinds of movies that I don't get out to see as much now because it requires selling my wife on it, which isn't necessarily a hard thing to do, but then there are certain things that I'm way more excited about. And sometimes my enthusiasm alone is enough to put her off a movie. So <laughs> that one, and since we've had our kids, so er everything post 2009, um, has been sometimes a battle, you know, and so I don't, I don't particularly like to go to movies by myself these days. Uh, it happens occasionally. So, you know, a lot of times I just end up watching it at home later and it's one that's growing on me intensely with each watch. I think I'm four times in now. Do you remember when you, when you first saw it? I can't remember now. It's, that's the other thing that's really interesting about that's it. It's so odd. Right, that it's that it's a thing where now it's just a movie I'm kind of fascinated with, and so the beginning, I don't know, it's like a Mobius strip. I can't quite find the beginning, you know, and and somehow I think that's that works appropriately. But, so yeah, appropriately, so explain that. Yeah, but well, I, I'm growing growing to love it more and more. So, Brian, I think you've lived with it a little longer. Yeah, I think, and so. I think that. Where one stands with Inherent Vice has a lot to do not so much with how many times you've seen it, but more with how long it's lived in your head and taken root. 
And so it's lived a little bit longer with you. Did you, did you like it? Did you love it when you first saw it? Or was there, a lot of people have this, this arc of, eh, it was okay. I, I watched it like 30 minutes at a time. I couldn't get through it in one sitting. And then now I'll just sit, just watch it compulsively. It's my late night movie. It's, it's the thing that, you know, it lulls me to sleep at night. Was it like that for you? Or were you gobsmacked the second you saw it? No, it was a, I got to say it was one, and, and PTA has done this to me a few times where I'll watch it and maybe I don't fully get it. You know, maybe I, I'm not exactly sure what, sometimes I'm not sure what's going on, you know, and this movie is for me sometimes, as much as I like detective films, I do find myself having to watch them, you know, over and over. I'm going to talk about later a, a movie that I pair with this one and that movie in particular I think I've seen probably 10, 15 times now, and it's starting to come into focus, you know, only the last four or five times. But I feel the process is similar for me with this movie. It's just very dense in certain ways and has such an interesting sense of humor. And I don't know, it's really, the Doc character is just one that I think, I don't know, I had certain, with PTA, I also have expectations. And going into it, I was like, what is this going to be? Is this going to be his long goodbye? And it's not that, you know what I mean? It's something else to me, at least to me. Um, and yeah, it's, I don't know. It's definitely one that's just sitting in my head. And, and this most recent rewatch is the one I liked it the most. So I will say I wasn't, I wasn't not blown away, but I think I was just like, that's going to, in the back of my head, I'm like, that's going to be a thinker. That's going to be something that I'm going to have to come back to a few more times and I'm going to need to give it you know, some breathing room between yeah. viewings. And now I'm at the place where I'm like starting to hit my stride with it. And I'm feeling bad that we didn't talk about it in our best of 2010s episode. Oh, I feel bad about that too. I know you do. I, I know felt you do. bad at the time about that. I know you do. I noted it. I was there. I, I was listening. <laughs> I, I can honestly say if we recorded that right now, it would make it. It, it yeah. didn't because I'd only seen it once. Uh, when I, on this re I actually think it's a impossible film to fully not fully even understand, fully feel is a better way to put it on first viewing because I really liked it. I'm glad I waited for actually now because that first viewing because I realized I was watching it away from any of the hype or, or negativity surrounding it at all. I just watched it like, oh, I'm, I'm curious to see how this one plays. And then, but so much at the start, even though it's beautiful, the depth of what it is isn't, I, I don't think you can fully understand it until the second viewing, especially the stuff happening in the first few minutes. Because when you first start watching a movie with no context and she just shows, you know, when Chester just shows up, all of that scene on first viewing is like, oh, oh, this is cool, but this is the first few minutes of a movie. I'm just acclimatizing to the world. Watching it yesterday or whenever it was, the part, and I heard you guys, you and Kim Morgan, talk about the line, which did get to me, where, where she says, watch your toes. But it's it's not that in, in the second viewing. It's that his hand never leaves the, leaves car, the car as she's going, and she keeps going and going, and his hand's still on the car. And yeah. I that's where I like as if to will her to physically stop. And that is the element of that that got me first viewing. I wouldn't have even seen the hand on the car first viewing. <laughs> I wouldn't have even noticed that he's touching yeah. the car because I didn't know who she was. And so I've got to say the second viewing, even though the first I really enjoyed it, and it was it was really like it was a nice surprise second viewing the depth of feeling came through the the reason i can understand your obsession with this now whereas i wouldn't have been able to i was saying before i this felt like a weird one to do a you know a minute by minute podcast initially in my mind when you first announced it 
now having watched it again and listened to a couple episodes, it's like, no, this is kind of the perfect freewheeling. There's there's no wrong answer movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it feels like there's a novel out of every mm. scene. And we were talking about some of the Herculean episode lengths of some of these previous episodes. When someone can come on and just take, you know, we were talking about the great, the great Jimmy Hempel. When his his scene that he talked about was the scene with Doc and uh, it was uh, uh, Doc and Penny when they're sitting on the bench. Just that scene where just two people sitting on a bench and it's just a slow close-up. We went two and a half hours on that. <laughs> just because there's so, there's so much. And this is one of those films where each, each of its component parts, each scene, you could write like a master's thesis on everything that uh, Pynchon originally put in there, everything that PTA adjusts and Rubik's Cubes. A Rubik's cubed into his particular style. It's incredible. All of which is to say that yes, I am I am still burning and smarting and stinging from that dark day when I was listening to the Pure Cinema podcast best of the 2010s. I remember where I was parking in front of Cantor's and I screamed, Oh, son of a bitch. Well, well for when I think you went with the uh, Phantom we Thread. Do, we don't do best of remember. Well, it was favorite. Okay, whatever it was. These are just ones we're feeling. It's, I, to be honest, I, I think I put Master into the night. I did Master, and I've only seen it one time. And I'm going to need to rewatch that for our upcoming episode, and I'm I'm very curious how I'm going to feel about that one because that's another film that holds back certain secrets. But the, the, this film, the thing I think's most interesting compared to because we're kind of in the midst of rewatching a lot of his films. Tonally, this one's the most interesting. Like it's it, it's the ability, like I know not to put our scene before the horse here, but the scene right before our scene is one of the most tender, delicate things I've ever seen. It's probably yeah. my favorite moment in the movie within the rain. And then for it to then go directly into a broad comedy sequence, <laughs> the movie is so interesting. Cause like even Magnolia will have comedy and darkness, but it's never, there's, it's never that far a gap as this film does. And yet it does completely hold together. Even the really goofy over the top moments, uh, somehow just feel more grounded the way he's done it here. That was exactly, exactly the thing that I was going to talk about hmm. oh, to kick this this episode off is exactly that. And ha- because today's, today's scene is such an interesting one, both for what it contains and what we're going to get to, but also, like you said, for what it follows. Uh, you know, in PTA, I think we have, you know, if, if we have Jonathan Demme's most ardent disciple, in, in, in Paul Thomas Anderson. And if, if Demi was like the king of the gear shift movie, of the tonal, the tonal whiplash, then PTA is like his, his crown prince. And what's amazing to, to me is, as you said, I find that scene of Doc and Shasta running in the rain to be, it's not just like the most mournful and melancholic set piece of this film. I find it, for me personally, to be the most gorgeously painful sequence in Anderson's entire filmography. It's just the one that gets me. It's the one that rings my bell. That that sadness and longing for a time that you know was already over and ruined even as it was happening. There's something so heartbreaking about that. And then to follow that up in the form of a crushed velvet pantsless Martin short <laughs> going peak short. Like there is no yeah. governor on his performance. There is no restraint whatsoever. The fact that any director could do such a thing. There are times when I watch this, and I've, and as many times as I've seen this movie, I still cannot comprehend how it holds together. 
Every single thing about this movie screams that it should not work. Nothing about this movie should work. And I think it's one of the reasons to have this, this nerdy little podcast is to talk to people about it and figure out like, you know, you were talking about, you know, Kim's episode, a huge crux of that episode was us just trying to figure out why do we like this? Like, why do we enjoy this movie that on a kind of a structural level makes zero sense whatsoever? Like nothing about this, nothing about this is the way a movie we've been trained to, to watch a film or to expect from a film to go from the saddest moment, uh, uh, the most heartrending moment of Doc's life to Martin Short running around with no pants on. <laughs> and that it works. It works. It, is, it, it shouldn't. And, it, and it's, that right there is a reason why I would be, I am this obsessed is because I can't figure out why that works. And, how and yet works. it's, and it's at the exact same time it's being political, especially on first viewing, you don't necessarily catch some of that, but just him going back to a place that was empty, a vacant lot, you know, one time and then walking back in this giant, you know, golden fang uh, building is in its way. You're definitely, even before you enter, you're already getting the shift in culture that's coming, the thing that is going to plow the previous generation. And it's, it, it is done in a way that's almost subliminal. Like you're, you're not even taking it in as you watch. And then later on, you're catching up to certain ideas, like 30 yeah. minutes later. <laughs> it's a very strangely uh, kind of uh, designed film. The way this movie releases information, it's like a brain sending signals to, to, the, to the body. It, it, and, I'm, and I'm not saying this, I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, Elric, <laughs> but it is kind of one of those movies where you'll watch it and you'll go, uh-huh, okay. And then you'll read something. And in this case, it was mine, but it could be somebody yeah. else's too. But you're, and that's, it's one of those movies where when you're talking about it with someone else or you're reading about it from someone else's point of view that you go, oh, shit, that's what that was. Oh, oh, okay. And like, it, as we were talking in that previous scene that, that I how the way Ryan and I looked at it was the thing that's going to destroy the sixties was there long before the sixties even existed. Like you said, that, that, that tower, the, the foundation for it was already there. It was even in his memory the, the happiest day he ever had with Shasta. It was already all tainted. It was ruined by this, by this force, which also feels very, very, very 2020 to me. I don't know about you guys. Oh yeah. Very much. But, but even the noir elements are, the actual story, which I know people, some people talk about as being hard to follow, on second viewing, you realize how simple it is. First viewing, it makes sense that it's a little complicated because some of the names are going to take <laughs> you a bit to remember jumping around. Yeah. But second viewing, you're just like, I'm, I'm kind of marveling at just, it really is an A to B kind of crime story. You know, this person's doing this, land deal, this person's been kidnapped. Oh, I ran into this old case of mine. Like, it has diversions, but it's really pretty straightforward. But first viewing, it isn't at all, because I think I think it's easy to get jumbled along the way. And I, I kind of find that pleasurable uh, to kind of straighten that out on the second viewing, I must say. So if somebody's listening to this and they're still a one-time uh, watcher like me, that second journey. And look, it was the same for Once Upon a Time with me. That first viewing, we knew it was special, but I don't think I fully got it and then the second third viewing it became you know a film that i'll watch forever well first i can't fathom anybody watching inherent vice one time and then diving into this podcast unless they're just really angry at how much that movie did not make sense to them and they're just yeah. <laughs> hatefully listening to this to, to finally find their way through it all but that brings up a good point uh and i'm, I'm curious from both of you elric you saw this movie after once upon a time in hollywood right Oh, you 
you're a person who actually came into this. No, and I think I, I think it's still a little bit before, but not. Oh, not okay. I think I'd seen like the trailer for what the trailer just dropped. I think it was a little bit before. Do you do you view these two films, either of you, as companion films? Once Upon a Time and Inherent Vice, because I know a lot of people. I see people on Twitter saying, "Oh, that would be the perfect double feature," which just, that I don't know. That sounds like the most butt-numbing, way too long yeah. double feature in the world. But I do. Th there is something to these. It is interesting to see how these two filmmakers, who I think are two of the very best living filmmakers of our time, it's interesting how they both look back at this era and what they find interesting and what they want to talk about versus versus the other. Yeah, no, I definitely noticed that more this time. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as double featuring them, although they, yeah, there's a kinship that I, again, I like this a lot because I'm still rooting around in it, you know what yeah. I mean? And so... I was feeling things with it where I was like, I mean, you know, I'm sure people have talked about there's like a KHJ moment and there's some other stuff <laughs> yeah. that I that I noticed and I was just like, ah, this is so interesting. It's it's not necessarily like Doc's running around and if he drove up to Cielo Drive, you know, Rick could come running out <laughs> with the margaritas <laughs> or anything like that, but he might, you know. Um, but yeah, it's there was enough of a universe similarity that I like to think of them sort of in the same plane of existence on some level. I don't know. Yeah, I was being really pretentious the other day, trying to convince someone who still had not seen Inherent Vice, but loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the, the best argument I had to get them to watch it was, I was like, well, even though this order is reversed, look at Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as Kid A, and Inherent Vice is like amnesiac. It's just taking the themes, it's taking the same song, and it's just rewiring it. It's a little bit more diffuse. It's a little bit more weird and sad. But if you love one, you're going to fall for the other eventually. It'll, it'll get its hooks into you eventually, eventually. And, hey, you, you get Martin Short running around with no pants on. Like, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a pro-Martin Short household. And to see him on the big screen again doing his thing, his, his – jerry lewis on cocaine shtick what's better than that what what is what's better than that so only question. other only other martin short films <laughs> that's, that's the only like, possible answer here <laughs> put us in a corner so Eric, it sounds like you kind of fell in love with the movie a little bit more the first time around than brian is this just more your kind of because it's is this i don't more think your... it's more maybe it's just i start later like I, I i mean i can't i can't speak to that i just I had this idea, and maybe this is a marketing thing, you know, I had an idea, or maybe it was crit initial critics, which I don't really usually listen to. I'm, I'm still kind of surprised I didn't watch it in theaters. I don't know what that was about. So but, much, um, I, I mean, I know you are a PTA guy. Oh, it's, I mean, he's, he's probably would, my favorite working director. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's weird crazy. you'd sit one out. Yeah, I don't, I, 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 sometimes you can't, some, I don't know what, what it was. I think a pension, you know, I've, I've, I've failed reading a couple pension books in college. I, I did <laughs> yeah. read Crying a Lot 49. Um, very a long time ago, I did my first. I, I've told Brian this, but uh, I was in Studio City, ooh, almost uh, must have been about eight nine years ago when I first got to LA, and I walked into Bookstar, and I'm looking through the books in the film section, and I turn and PTA's like one inch from me. He's the only other person there, and I was like, oh, and he's he's looking through a horror 
film book. And I was so excited. He was looking at like the history of horror films. And I was like, oh, oh, hey, you're PTA. Like, and said, oh, horror, you like horror? And he goes, oh, I love horror. And then he started talking about horror. And then I just, I can't remember why I said it, but I had heard he was adapting uh, Inherent Vice. And I said, oh, you know, I read somewhere in one of Kubrick's books that he said Pynchon would be basically impossible to adapt. And he's like, oh my God, I've never heard that. When, do you know where that, do you know where he said that? And I was like, I can't for the life of me remember. I just remember reading it. There was, he was thinking about adapting something of pensions at some point. And mm -hmm. he just, he, he walked away after a while saying, no, I think it's impossible. And which is weird because he's also the guy who's famous for saying, if it can be written or thought it can be filmed. It can be filmed. <laughs> so he's a uh, big, but, um, but I, that's my only PTA meeting of my life in my lifetime is this very strange, you know, it's super nice, but it was just funny that it was about this film and then somehow I go without seeing it. But I think I was, I think I was just really, I, I wasn't surprised about that it was good. Uh, I think I was just expecting something more mannered. Uh, sometimes period pieces can rub me the wrong way with certain directors. They'll make all these contemporary films I love, then suddenly they'll make something that feels fake. And hmm. maybe some of the trailers I saw for it looked that way. I actually do know why now. My best friend who's introduced me to a lot of movies I've talked about on our show back in New Zealand, he had started watching and he said he fell asleep after 30 minutes and really didn't care for it right oh. after it come out. And that must have dampened a little bit of me, you know, for whatever reason, my, uh, my heading to see it, which I obviously regret now. And now my goal will be to convince him to watch the whole movie. So. Well, thank God. Yeah. But also my God, Eller, you buried the lead here bumping into PTA after it's announced that he's making inherent vice. I know. You should have led with that. <laughs> I know. I, I I have forgotten. I've never forgotten what we talked about, but I'd have forgotten it was about that, particularly about that film. Uh, I, and I had never read Inherent Vice, so I know it was a more recent pension book. But um, did did you read it before you knew PTA was making it? Yeah, I had read the book just because I I'd read I'd read Pension in college because I was a pretentious English major. So it's just as one does, you you read the books. But I was ex I was and I and I they were okay. They're fine. I mean. They're, they're masterpieces. I get it. It's just mm. not so much for me. Yeah. But uh, when Inherent Vice came out, I was excited because I love, I love, I love, I love detective stuff. I love, I love films noir. I love detective novels. I love Chandler. And everyone said, well, this is basically Pynchon just riffing on Chandler for 300 pages. So I got it. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I thought it was just like a fun, if, if Pynchon was ever going to write a beach novel, it was Inherent Vice. Not in not beach novel because it's set at a beach. It's an airport novel for him. It's something you read at the beach or the airport. Yeah. It, it's it's easy breezy. Pulp, yeah. uh, despite how despite how bitterly bitterly angry that book is, just absolutely caustically furious that yeah. that book is at America and at at himself and the the youth movement of the '60s and the early '70s. But I had read it, so yeah, I, I knew plot wise what i was going to be getting going into the film but as i've said before in the show what totally waylaid me and the reason why i fell so in love with the film was just it was all that heart it was all the heart that was in in the in the film all that just that it summed up best i think in that final shot that wistful pta-ish smile that uh, doc has as he's looking right at the camera and any day now starts to play there's just a level of sweetness and melancholy that only his films, I think, really traffic in and balance in that perfect Demi way that just, I, felt, I was in love. I was in love the second I saw the, the film. When I was walking out, I was just, I was bumping into walls like I was stoned. Like I was just so happy 
with this film. And that's the only other time I have been that high figuratively from a PTA movie was when I saw The Master. And I was convinced I had probably just seen the greatest film that I was ever going to see in a first run situation. Hmm. And I'll, I'll even admit, I, I, I love Inherent Vice and it's my favorite, but The Master probably is his best film. Hmm. I'll say it. I'm excited and, to rewatch that one too, just because that's been on my mind a lot lately. He's even said it's his best. Even after Phantom Thread came out, he, he said he doesn't wow. think he'll ever, he, he says, I don't think, he's like, I get that it has its flaws. I get why some people don't like it, but I don't, I don't see myself making a better or more personally meaningful film than The Master ever. Well, and I think that's partially the mystery of the, the part that somebody might not get about it, that he gets about it. Yeah. He, he talks about it all the time with his writing. He, he writes for him yeah. first. And, that, and that's key. And I got that with The Master. The Master's got some elements of, um, obviously, some as satire or you know, social commentary. But also there's parts of it, of the personal sides, the relationships, the, the male friendship that feel very personal and like we're not seeing the full picture and that yeah. he knows the full picture, but we're not seeing it all. And I think that's... Uh, those movies tend to grow in my brain too. They tend to be the ones I fall for over time. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could talk about him all day because as, and as we will be doing on the other show as well, but, <laughs> <laughs> it's, but, but they really do hold up. I mean, the one that, you know, obviously a lot of people, uh, I was telling Brian, you know, Magnolia when I saw it at 20 or whatever, 21, you know, just, it just knocked my socks off the ambition, the sadness, but then the sweetness, which is the other side of, of it. You know, we talk about the Riley character and, uh, I, I think he's got that running through all his films. They, they go, they go really dark because they can go as dark as they want. Because there's always going to be this heart there that can buoy you back up, and maybe that's the difference between him and Pynchon in that, in that sense, in terms of the book to the film. Yeah, you know? and I think that that's the difference between him and a lot of filmmakers mm-hmm. as well as, especially younger filmmakers. If you look at his younger films, where it would be cool to be nihilistic mm-hmm. and to be bleak and to be totally existential. And then you go back and you watch some, you watch stuff like Sydney and Boogie Nights and Magnolia. And for however, however stupid some of those characters may be, however foolish they may be, the mistakes that they make, there's always this underpinning of, of sad sweetness where you realize he loves these characters so much and he cares about them. And with the exception of uh, maybe Jimmy Gator in Magnolia, wants them to all be okay in the end hopes that they're going to be okay in the end and again i i think that's a level of of maturity that's that that's kind of shocking and i think again that's that's the thing that was shocking about inherent vice and you know to your point about there being something in the master that seems like it's like a nerve beneath the surface that you can't quite put your finger on about you know this this friendship between these two men i feel like that's actually been a recurrent theme in these last three movies of his the master inherent vice and then phantom thread all seem to be examining why two opposite forces are attracted to one another and how they either totally fuck that up or how they somehow manage to make a decent enough omelet to make that work and i i there's there's something going on in his in his mind and in his work that i find fascinating about that that's such an essential human story which is how the hell do we get along? How the hell do how do we not kill each other? And why do we care about each other so much if we want to kill each other half the time? Well, don't you think most when you're just saying young directors? I think most filmmakers are uh, telling you something. They're giving you the answer, and he is a total questioner. He is a he is I am on a journey to figure something out. 
filmmaker. And that's why I think it has lots of places to, to enter for us as an audience in the same way, say a Lynch does in a different way. It's, we can project ourselves in because it's not all there for you. It hasn't been answered. He's not trying to seal this up. He's trying to figure out stuff about himself. He's working through shit. And I find that to be really compelling and very, very, uh, I think Brian was talking about it yesterday, very um, kind of raw, like he's willing to put himself out there. Yeah, that's definitely something I respond to. We we talked about it on the show, but that raw emotion is so powerful, almost to the point of being a bright light that you can't stare into. And that's <laughs> that was something that I had watching Magnolia again this time was getting to the multiple breakdowns in that film and just being like, oh my God, this is, this is too much. Because I, like him, care about these characters and seeing what he does to them ultimately not not exactly that that's not putting it right because obviously we know that's not his end game really yeah but yeah Elric's totally right it is about posing the questions and not the answers and that to me I think is a big one for inherent vice because it's it's definitely one where I think I because of my feelings about him and how much I love him and how much like you I love detective detective movies going in I had expectations and I don't know what they were and I just know that it wasn't what I expected. But then again, especially lately, his films are never what I expect. That's yeah, the that's, complexity that's the that he has. You know, I went into I went into Phantom Thread, and and I'm a PTA fan, and and I'm a fan of Merchant Ivory movies. <laughs> I, I will admit, I went I went to the Black Friday first screening of Phantom Thread. In, uh, it was in the the theater in Beverly Hills where uh, PTA did the Q and A after, and I wasn't dreading it, but at the same time I was just like, oh god, I'm gonna do this, I guess. Uh, hmm. And 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 I really I really thought the the high point of that screening was gonna be that I told Jeff Wells to fuck himself <laughs> uh, when he asked if he could sit next to me. Um, <laughs> uh, but luckily for me, the film is. The film is what it is, which was such a surprise to me based on my expectations because I was really like, oh boy, this is just going to be it. I was thinking Predaporta. <laughs> I kept thinking in my head, oh, so is this going to be his Predaporta? I was like, oh, I, was I don't like, know if I feel like that. This is just going to be very, very kind of minor key drama. And again, that's great. And I love Merchant Ivory movies, but I was like, God, do I want to sit for two and a half hours in here? Ah, it's such a beautiful day outside. Yeah. And then, of course, it turns out to be this weird, kinky, cold, Kubrickian, you know, romantic mindfuck power struggle that I only understood in the the final 10 minutes when I realized what she was doing to him and it unlocked her. I was like, oh, that's what this movie is about. That's what this whole movie has been about. I didn't realize that until the very end. And I know what it's like to go into his, because Brian, like you said, I think every movie eventually subverts expectations. Just like, I think, didn't we all go into the master going, oh boy, this is the one where he's going to give it to Scientology. Mm -hmm. the way he gave it to big oil and there will be blood. And then you go back and watch there will be blood. And it's, it's about a father and a son it has, it's, it's really nothing about, it's, it's really no attack on capitalism or anything like that. I mean, those things are there, but it's, it's a story about a father and a son. And similarly, you know, I went into the master going, Oh boy, he's really going to stick it to him. <laughs> stick it to Scientology. And no, it's just about these, these two guys who just like wish they could make it work. Like it's, they just want to make it work. And- I, do, I do think they all have like I agree with you they're not it's not all about the big picture but as I was looking at it the other day and I, I think I posted something with realizing almost all of them have that warning male character that has led to a Trump-like figure 
of somebody yeah. who is power hungry and is going to use it to dominate other people. Almost every one of his films has that character that feels like a warning of, hey, there's also these guys. Every, yeah. you know, all the way through. And I, fa- I find that to be a, a very interesting, besides maybe Phantom Thread, because maybe that is the central character, but then he yeah. finds a deeper side to him. But I, I think that's pretty interesting too, because he doesn't, you can walk away from them and not be talking about that. You can walk away talking about, it's about a father and son. It's about yeah. two friends. It's about it's about a lost love. You're not being you're not being berated by the the, the theme, you know, which which is just I think very rare. And and to that I think you could say that it's those warning characters. It almost seems like the thing that each of them are trying to wall themselves off from and inure themselves from is feeling. It's it's not just that they're struggling for power. It's like if they get enough power, then no one can hurt them. They are, they're almost more than human at a certain point. You know, uh, Daniel Plainview just wants to get away from people, all these people who disappoint him and that disappointment hurts. So if he can just get, if he can just get into his castle, if he can just build, he can wall off the whole world and you get the same feeling with master. He's just trying to control everything around him so he can control what makes him feel anything. Mm -hmm. And I think you see the same thing in uh, uh, Reynolds. In, in Phantom Thread. And I think all down the line, there are these characters who are trying to artificially construct their, their own post-family family or build a wall to keep anyone the hell away from them all through that power. And, and I think that, there, that that ties into Inherent Vice and a little bit into Magnolia because it's all these people who are just aching. They're just aching. You know, if Magnolia is about, you know, what can we forgive? It's, I feel like Inherent Vice is similarly about like, what can we let go? What can we live without? What can we let go of? You know, how long can we keep our hand on the car before we finally have to let go? And how bad is that going to hurt when we take our hand off? And, I, and, and to me, that's so much of what his filmography is about is just how do we live with this thing? How do we survive this thing? Whatever that capital T thing might be. And that's, that's what binds his work to me. And it just, it's why, I th- I, and I would agree, I, th- I just, I think he is the best, most human and humane American filmmaker that we have. That's why I love it when he mocks Tarantino. I love it when he, I love it when he says, it <laughs> makes fun of his retirement thing. I love it because he's saying like, why would he retire? Like, this he's is, so this, disappointed in every Yeah, because this is the thing that they do that is different than other humans and the way to express yourself. And obviously PTA is coming at it like, I should be doing this till it's taken away from me. Because it's, yeah, exactly. and, and he's viewing somebody who's so good that he knows is so good. Obviously, Quentin and his last film is, you know, we could argue about it, but it might be his best movie, which is crazy yeah. given, given the filmography with like Jackie Brown in it. Um, but, but it might be, and it might still be growing. And you go, oh, it's, it's, it's a different, <laughs> I guess it's a different approach. One person wants to leave something kind of perfect behind and not, not, not add a flaw to the, the filmography, which is, you know, is gonna it's gonna certainly age brilliantly but i do love the idea it's like daniel day lewis retiring i want him to come back and play the riddler i want him to play a terrible <laughs> bond villain i want him to be in a goofy comedy like i want him to ha- come back and go you know what i retired the serious actor retired but i'm gonna come back and have fun for 10 years and do what british actors used to do and you know because it's such a bummer because he's so good but he's always been put in such serious things i feel like maybe he hasn't gotten to enjoy himself <laughs> you want to full on you want to see him and his michael kane and jaws i totally do i mean the revenge yeah let's bring it let's bring it actually <laughs> daniel day lewis versus jaws right? I mean, but i could it, do a whole list. the island man he no, was in the island boy. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. no stuff. i just think i think just quentin's just too hung up on the idea of a 
of a filmography, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. And and I get it, like you said. Well, I mean, there's something to be said for that when you yeah, have that's filmography that he when that he does. I could I could I, I, no one can blame that man for wanting to be precious about yeah. that nine film and hopefully eventually ten film stretch. Like, I mean, I do get that. But I also get that PTA thing when every interview is like, oh, come on, how could you leave this? This is like yeah, the yeah. greatest thing in the world. We get to make movies and tell stories. Yeah, I think that's very in keeping with that that vibe of PTA's films, which is that willingness to be messy and that willingness to be emotional and that willingness to put parts of yourself, even if you don't ID them for the audience to know what they are, something that is so yourself and so personal and so meaningful and just and just be messy with it. And I think that's one of the things that makes this film stand out is it is there are a lot of films that are messy just because movies are hard to make and and sometimes they just they don't work this is a film that is so messy by design it's like exile on main street it's just designed to be like a rorschach test or a, or a pollock painting it's just designed to be a mess and that's another thing i love about pta is his willingness to just be let's just be a mess let's just make a mess and there'll be some good stuff in there some people will find some stuff they like eventually yeah, I I just also like the idea of the way that we cinephiles come back to movies again and again and examine them from a different point of view, from a different point of your life. You know, you've gotten married, you've had kids. How does that affect how you view, view a movie? He's doing that. I mean, I, obviously, a lot of directors do this, but I really feel so much that he's doing it with his life. You know, I mean, he obviously goes back and watches movies that way, but yeah. to make movies that way, is even more exciting to me. I mean, I could never do it, but to watch him evolve and to watch him explore and the idea that he's really never going to run out of steam because life goes on and there's some new thing that you're dealing with and that is changing your point of view on whatever. And, and yeah, I just, I, I will watch his movies till the end of time, you know? And please, both of you, promise me, promise me, when the new Bev reopens and they get around, they come back around with a 35 millimeter print of Inherent Vice, promise me you'll go see this on the big screen. <laughs> promise me that. Come on. Oh, for sure. I know you have kids. Is, I know is on Netflix. <laughs> Son of a bitch. No, Again. I, I, I promise. I, I, the, I, these kind of movies. Also, there's a couple shots in this that are just utterly some of the most beautiful shots there's some things of the beach and of shasta with light fading light behind her there's images in this movie that are burnt into my memory now uh, they're just so beautiful uh, and and those kind of things do do warrant needing to be seen on 35 they do and oh. as i as someone who's seen it on 35 more times than is healthy which i'm sure will shock both of you not it is it is such a gorgeous, gorgeous film on the big screen. I know that I think I think a lot of people think of this film as an uglier film. Uh, you know, there's there's hmm. there there's, well, there are so many sequences of like Doc and another character sitting against an off-white wall and just dueling exposition at each other. And yet there are, but there are so many moments. Whether it's that red that red tinged dusk at the very beginning with that green bright neon font, which is so gorgeous, or the shots of Doc just watching Shasta walk in the water with her arms outstretched. There are so many, or driving in the fog at the end, there are so many moments that are just such marquee Ellswit Anderson visions that are just, yeah. they deserve to be seen on the big screen. They or really the velvet do. ultraviolet suit. <laughs> of a handsome you man. velvet ultraviolet <laughs> suit 
falling around the ankles yeah. of a white-legged Martin Short. That deserves to be seen two stories high. It really <laughs> Uh, but what I think I think it's just as interesting that we ended up going w- with a, a short scene because I think we're, I mean I think that tells us a lot about our, our show in some ways because there are beautiful haunting sequences throughout this but we didn't even take much of a beat when we when this came out it wasn't so much picking this one but we just I think we both were in unison about picking a Martin Short <laughs> moment because his character comes in at such a, a fun point of the film and just br- gives it a whole different energy for a little while. Um, yeah. We might have equally been thinking about the car sequence. I, I think but, I was for sure yeah. thinking about the car sequence. Yeah, but it you know this scene leads into that you know ultimately. Yeah. Um, and I was surprised though that you guys kept pushing for short and I because like there I kept coming back to both of you going, "Are you sure that's the one you want?" Like <laughs> you guys have seen the movie, right? Like you know, there's like. A really complicated sex scene and then there's like a really there's kind of a cool like noirish night move shootout in a garage uh, I, I would have picked the jenna malone scene at the top now if i could go back and pick it because it's just one of the funniest oh. scenes I, I, watching it again just made me realize oh yeah jenna malone is steals well, everything she's in every but, episode um, every episode has to have what at least one massive discursive digression yeah because it's inherent vice so you want to talk really quick about jenna malone and how perfect she is she's in that just, scene she's just and how so like good. she balances comedy and pathos yeah just I, i've seen a number like of a things where i don't artist. recognize her i will forget it's her for a moment uh even neon demon i remember having a moment like that the tv show god forgives when the god forgives something else there was like three things in a row where i realized oh god jenna malone and each of these is so different looking and uh and each one just chameleon like in terms of how she blends into the world but uh, but but I I like that we went with uh, Martin Short because also you know he's he's one of those actors who like we all know PTA has a SNL thing right he, oh yeah you know had multiple kids with one of them um, so <laughs> he's got call that, that an SNL thing yeah. that's an SNL thing we it's an all SNL have that. thing um, but but you know I also think found it surprising at that moment in the film too I think like I wasn't it's like I lower my guard for a certain type of film and then suddenly it's like, oh, Martin Short wearing a bright purple. And like Mars, his Mars Attacks role, yeah, it definitely brought that back because when I remember when I first saw Mars Attacks, he was my favorite part of that film. Like I by love- By far, by yeah, he was, far. He was gold in that movie. He, he does a thing. I don't even know what you'd call it. Uh, he's got that like 30 yard stare. Mm-hmm. He does where he'll play a character that's just looking right through you into nothing. And there's a no. blankness to that, which is just- I never not laugh when he does that face where he's playing someone who is thinking of nothing, absolutely nothing. And just <laughs> looking through you just with the most beautific angelic smile uh, of, of being untainted by knowledge. Is, oh, I've never seen anyone else but him do that. And it kills me every time. Yeah. Speaking of which, let's the three of us, we're going to watch this. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about it. And we're going to do a PCP lightning round of double features. All right, we'll be right back. Penis, I'm gonna go look around. You wanna wait in the car? Come and cover my back. I was gonna try to go find a pizza. Is that okay? All right, now you recall this is stick shift, not automatic and so forth? It's easy as pie, dog. Mm. Afternoon. Mm. This is the address they gave me at Club Asiatique in San Pedro. Just here to pick up a package for the management. Hello, this is Sandra from Front Desk. We have a pickup for management. 
Follow me. Dr. Blatnoid will see you in a moment. Some ID, I imagine. I don't, I don't know what this is. It's, what is it? It's Oriental or something. Is it Chinese? Well, I figured uh, you being Chinese. What? What are you talking about? The golden thing. It's a syndicate. Most of us happen to be dentists. Mm. Syndicate of dentists set up long ago for tax purposes. All legit. <laughs> Where did you tell Zandra you were from again? Why, you're another one of those hippie dope fiends, aren't you? My goodness, my goodness me. Here for a little perking up, are we? It's from Darmstadt. Lab quality. Mm, well, I tried to do any dope I can't pay for is what it is. No, 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 on the house. In fact, maybe I'm gonna even join you for one, one little moment. Oh. Doctor, I think there's a problem with the couch in your office. And bring that bottle. Dr. Rudy Blatnoid, DDS. I always get emotional at that part. <laughs> <laughs> there's all that coke left on the table wasted just to it's, it's, me well they come they come back to it in they the come end. back a little they, bit they yeah. make a group effort you know they they join hands now elric you were saying something and it's the perversity the sheer perversity of toying i think a little bit with your audience's emotions of giving us again the most heartbreaking the sweetest the most melancholic possible scene in this film Doc and Shasta, a man and woman running in the rain, with a gorgeous Neil Young song playing over it. You're watching this, like, I remember in the theater, the first time watching, I was feeling like tears in my eyes, going, this is just so fucking beautiful. And I think everyone that watches this, you either think of someone you're with or someone you've been with, someone that you miss, and you're like, you have an equivalent moment in your life that's like this, where you're like, oh man, I never realized it was never going to get better than that day. And I didn't know about it until after. God, you watch that, and like you said, you, you, you lower your emotional defenses. You're, you're like, all right, I don't know what's going on in this movie. I don't understand half of it, but I'm sold now. I'm with it. I'm with the, emo I get the emotional wavelength. 
And then all of a sudden, Martin Short shows up dressed like Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah. Does a lot of blow, drops his pants, and runs out of the room. And kind of leaves us a lot like Doc in this scene, just kind of staring slack-armed and stoned. Just like, well, what the hell was that? Mm. Well, what was this? You, no, 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 no. Huddle up, PTA. You, you don't get to do that. You haven't. And yet he, <laughs> he does it. Like, like I said, like, like Jonathan Demi, like just that ultimate gear shift of you're watching something wild and you think you're watching a cute romantic uh, screwball farce and then all of a sudden like, Ray Liotta's getting stabbed and kidnapping people. It should and, and you're expecting something ominous because you're you're following the thread of the golden fang and you're starting yeah. to think, oh, okay, okay mafia this... syndicate. I love the thing about the syndicate. It's, it's, it's like a syndicate. It's a syndicate of doctors for tax reasons, you know, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but it, like, it does, yeah. It's like, yeah, tax shelter dentists? Like, aren't these the people that, like, fund, like, Cronenberg movies in the yeah, 70s? Right, right. These in are Canada. our bad guys? These yeah. are our villains? Yeah. And <laughs> it, it, it's, it's short? And, and yet it's somehow... It fits the perversity. Oh, that's how you film. lose it. That's how you lose the beauty of the. You, you, we didn't get Woodstock. I got. I grew up under Reagan as a kid. We <laughs> we didn't get any of the Woodstock love because of these fuckers. Like people like this character. People who are exploiting the people who are still into that, but they they have more money. They're older and they have drugs. You know what I mean? And so they can just buy. They can just buy the sexual freedom by their way in versus the people who are believing in that and that so he's seamlessly giving you that side of it politically but you're not thinking about that because it's martin short so you're you're having fun while you're being taught something in a weird way <laughs> which i which is the best way to do it well yeah and i think because and again genius god level casting mm-hmm. in that if there's someone that's going to disarm you and you're not going to be like oh well this is a heavy this isn't a heavy is if you see Martin Short just kind of ambling out of an elevator, something happens in your brain where you're like, oh, I'm just going to, this is great. This is great. I'm just going to laugh at this. This is great. Not realizing, you know, he's this horrible quasi-pedophile, coke-addicted dentist that's helping contribute to the death of the American dream itself. But in the moment, you're like, I like the guy. He's Martin Short. He's kind of funny. (laughs) He's doing his funny face that he does. Like, it's like the equivalent of when Jerry Lewis yells, hey, lady. Like right when he does the coke and he does that slack face, it's it, he shares his coke. He's yeah, very likable. Give yeah. him that. Well, that's that is a beat a beat from the book. If I usually don't complain when certain things from the book are left out, but there's a wonderful beat in the book. I wish PTA would have kept where after Blatnoid leaves, runs out of the office, and uh, with with Zandra, his his assistant, Doc spies a book on Blatnoid's desk that's literally titled Golden Fang Procedures Handbook. And it's open to this chapter called Interpersonal Situations Section 8, Hippies. And it says, dealing with the hippie is generally straightforward. His childlike nature will usually respond to drugs, sex, and or rock and roll, although in which order these are to be deployed must depend on conditions specific to the moment. (laughs) And I I love that the, the Fang are so trained to deal with people like Doc. They, they have a chapter. Just, just give them a little drugs or a little sex or a little rock and roll, depending on the situation, and you'll be able to get out of the situation like nothing. It's just perfect. It just works. Perfect. <laughs> it does work. But yeah, but again, so when you, the, Brian, the, the first time you were watching this, like, and you see it's going to be Martin Short. The, the, this is like, you're expecting Darth Vader to walk out <laughs> of that elevator. And instead, it's, it's Martin Short, dressed like Austin Powers. Like, do you do you hang on for that or do you, is this where you tune out? Because that's something I always like to track with people is 
for a lot of people, there's always this moment in somewhere in the film where like, you know, this is where it took me out. It just got a little weird or a little too diffuse. Now, like, and again, in this moment, we're expecting the villain to come out of that elevator. And instead, it's Dr. Rudy Blatnoid, DDS. Like, did that do it for you or did that kill it a little for you? Oh, no, no. That's where I lean in. Definitely. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's the one thing where I love that kind of stuff. Like, that is introducing a, a character actor like that at that point in the movie is something I relish. It's something that almost always earns points with me, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I totally was in. I was like, where is this going? That's definitely a where is this movie going now? <laughs> I don't know what's happening and I'm yeah. fully in kind of moment for me. And also- in the importance of casting. Like absolutely. had he miscast that, it might've been the out moment. If that was a comedian I didn't like and it was just played wrong, I might have been like, oh, what? You know, but because it was Martin Short, I was excited to see him, excited to see him against type. Always excited to see when, when he's put, put against the, what we expect of for him. Uh, yeah, and it pulled, I, I totally leaned into that too. And once I got to the car, I just, I love that kind of shit. <laughs> I just love oh, yeah. it when people are trying to get rid of drugs in a car. Sucker for that. Well, and freaking out about <laughs> yeah, it. Like, exactly. He freaks out so hard. We're yeah. so fucked. Like he's yeah, just, yeah. I know that's another scene, but. No, I'll, no, yeah. we're allowed to jump around. This is my show. This is my <laughs> show. We're in this, it's inherent vice. There's no strict lines. I, I love that you said that, Howard, because that, that is to me, there is nothing funnier than someone who is drunk or stoned and trying to handle police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. freaking out. It's, yeah. When uh, there's a moment in the car where, uh, when Japonica says, are, are you the great beast? No, no, honey. That's just, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's He's like chuckling to himself. And then my favorite Martin Short gag, the, the, or type of gag that he does, is when he's at like a thousand miles per second, when he's just rat-a-tat-tatting, he's got the high-pitched voice. And then there will be like a cabin pressure drop where he gets really, really low. And there's a beat in the car where he's like screaming, fuck, we're fucked. Okay, now my heart is beating like a loop. It's, it's beating. <laughs> <laughs> like when he just goes dead inside. Yeah, and there's the, and again, if you could, one of the reasons that I think Pete, that, that, that Short is a master is anybody else could be cast in this role and play it just as broad as Short does it. And it wouldn't work. There's something yeah. about what, and I think part of it is the, the, the genius of casting as well as we will accept a level of broadness from Short because we trust him. We know that we've seen Three Amigos. We've seen Inner Space. Yeah. We know that the man can handle broad. And so we'll trust him to play with essentially a human cartoon in a movie. Like, he's playing the villain of the film the trailers told you Inherent Vice was going to be, mm. if that makes sense. And it shouldn't work. And if literally nearly anyone else did it, I think, Brian, you're right. This would be like, no, this kills it. This is just, this is much. This is a little big. This is a little big and a little broad for what this film is trying, this more minor key film is trying to do. But if you get Martin Short to do it, I think as an audience, we'll accept it. We'll live with it because we trust him to be this insane. We trust him to be this insane. Well, and, and not to get ahead of, to the pairings, but I think he has sort of dined out on this kind of character, this kind of eccentric character that he is, a, he's, I mean, I, I can't speak to what his process is, but he clearly has seen and met some very <laughs> odd people in his life. And I do think he's pulling some of that in when he does this. And my pairing, oh, for sure. my pairing for this, I, I know is obviously based on a real person. Um, and I want to say that that's the foundation for these kind of roles. And I'm not saying he's doing the same thing over and over again, cause he's not, he's adding layers and, doing different things but like you say that full-on freak out 
you know, down moment, like that's, that's a really hard thing to pull off. And, and it's an interesting choice to make. And yeah, he's, I, he just doesn't get enough credit. I think people think, you know, broad comedy, like you say, SNL or SCTV or whatever. And, and he doesn't get credit for doing the subtle things and making the choices that he makes. And yeah, it's not just, he's going to be an eccentric, weird character again. He's not bringing the same guy. It's really neat. Yeah, I think when people see him, they think, well, Jiminy Glick or something like that. <laughs> Even forgetting that Jiminy Glick, the, the jokes are quite funny and quite sharp. It's just, you, it's a guy in a fat suit. So you're like, oh, okay, this is like, kind yeah. of, it's a little sticky, whatever. But that, that's, again, the, the genius of PTA is to cast someone like Martin Short to wind the little clock on his back and then just step back and let him go full. Because he, go, he goes full Martin Short in this film. Yep. In a way that I don't think we've seen since something like maybe Inner Space, where he just yeah. there's no restraint whatsoever. He is like, like Scarface, just machine gunning at right at the screen <laughs> everything that Martin Short. And did. I love and, that you can just imagine, like watching this, I can see PTA laughing off screen, and I love <laughs> that. I love any performance where you know the director's off camera laughing, like they yeah. can't stop themselves. You know a take is ruined because the director laughed. Uh, I, I think when we talked to maybe Richard Kelly about Southland Tales, you can imagine some of those casting yeah, choices yeah. might have done the same to him. And I, I think that's really, that's always super fun. Well, another thing about this movie that maybe shouldn't work is, I think it was, was it Ebert that said, when you can tell that the cast had a really great time making the movie, the movie is almost never all that great because too many people were having a good time off camera. This is one of those times where, yeah, you would almost imagine these scenes wouldn't work because the director was enjoying them too much that he mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to like give them a jaundiced eye and be, be able to go, this doesn't quite fit or this is a little too big. But yeah, I, I, I love that you can sense that this is just happening. If for no other reason, then PTA is getting a huge kick out of having the star of SCTV just do his thing in one of his movies for like a five minute jaunt. And it, Short even talked about that. They were doing a big cast, Q, uh, cast and crew Q&A in New York when the film came out. And he said that like one of the things that surprised him is, you know, he went on to this, he kind of, I think was expecting this very cold Stanley Kubrick hmm. figure out of PTA. And he just said, PTA just kept laughing at every take and, and Short would go, do you want me to do another one? And he's like, yeah, do it again if you want. That'd be great. <laughs> Let's watch. Just try something different. And it was like PTA was just getting him to do routines and skits just for his own, like his own pleasure, just to have it in the can. And again, who else would do that but like someone like PTA? Yeah. Now, what I find so compelling, there, we, we learn in this film, there's a lot of, of rings, intersecting rings and rungs of the ladder of the Golden Fang. There's the Indo-Chinese heroin cartel. There's the boat bringing the heroin over. There's the, the drug dealer uh, distribution system out of Chick Planet that's getting everybody depressed about the war, strung out on heroin, so that they can then go get their heroin zap teeth replaced and then go kick heroin at Skylodone, only to come back out, find the war is still going on, and get right back on the heroin. Of all of those rings of evil that are depressing American life and keeping us down and keeping us sad so we stay hooked, what I find compelling about Blatinoid's specific ring of the fang and the overall scheme of its nefariousness is how fucking banal all mm. of this is. You know, again, we're watching a movie that is about the fictional cancerous rot that is destroying America. 
And with a movie this kind of weird and outsized, you keep expecting there's going to be that Matrix Reloaded moment where the, the, the bearded guy with all the, the TVs is going to be sitting there, this architect of all of our doom, explaining how he's done this to us. And instead, it's just the banality of an actual syndicate, an incorporated syndicate, Golden Fang. I love when Doc walks into the lobby and says, Golden Fang Enterprises Incorporated, corporate HQ. Everything shellacked in gaudy gold like Trump fucking tower. And my most recent rewatch of this scene for today, I I was like, wow, this this is the Trump tower of Doc's universe. Or Trump tower is the golden fang in ours. This corporatization of pure capitalistic greed that exists just for greed's sake, just like, you know, power for power's sake in Orwell's 84, just a boot stamping on the face of humanity forever. I was watching this scene, which used to be the big comic set piece for me after Bigfoot eating pot. (laughs) And instead, I watched this this time going, God, this just feels real. This just feels like the news. This, you know, today was the day that uh, we learned that, uh, according to him, Donald Trump is taking the hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, however you pronounce it. And just seeing, just seeing that man say stuff like that to get to sell sell it to us. And then to 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 watch this scene where uh, Dr. Rudy Blatnoid is is offering a little medicinal grade coke to Doc to chill him out because everything's gonna be okay while ensconced in all this gaudy gold. I was like, I was watching this day. I was like, wow, this scene isn't as funny anymore, is it? This is <laughs> this really is just today. This is today, and it's 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 interesting how this scene, as comic as it can be, it does fade as Doc walks into the little antechamber anteroom this is this really is like an american horror story this sequence it turns into a like an outright horror story or america's the horror story is what it could be going even deeper america's becoming this free capitalism is eventually becomes its own horror story in general it's a structure that you know i mean this is total political aside but like whoever you vote for the biden type of idea was not just that we can do things better but that all this shit has to get blown up and i think that does speak to the kind of characters from this movie i feel like doc would have been a biden guy who probably would have known biden uh, not biden sorry bernie he would have known bernie in that period because he would have realized that this isn't a structure that you can just undo and vote for another side. It is so entrenched now as a system. And you st- see that all the way through this movie. Like you said, they're little rings of hell, but you can't just get rid of one of them. And that's why it's such a difficult, it's a, it's a difficult power structure. And that's why it's, it's very hard for the little man in this case, doc to come out on top. And, and again, it's not the banality of evil is that it's going to, this dentist isn't the face of evil. He's just one of the, guys on the ladder of it who happens to benefit so it suits him and he gets money exactly. and, and woman and so it's worth <laughs> being evil you know and that's what it feels like today is it's not that this guy is like out to conquer the planet it's just he can see that he's gonna make a buck and he'll be taken care of if he goes along with this and if he supports this and if he plays ball he gets to be on the winning team and it just so happens that the other team is gonna get you know destroyed just utterly ruined and destroyed but but he'll be okay and God, that just, yeah. If that doesn't feel like election 2020, not to get heavy. Oh, yeah. I do, there's, if, some, if there's, there's a, some guys I wouldn't mind seeing uh, end up on a trampoline, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's the least tough guy talk. <laughs> Breaking your neck on a trampoline is pretty hilarious, but. Uh, <laughs> well, right. I, I, I was R. also, R. I mean, it, <laughs> it's obvious to say, Travis, but, but I mean, the sadness also comes from, you know, the building stands where, 
you know, Doc had his maybe greatest moment, you know, or his last, that, that fleeting moment of his life. And it's, it's just a monument. And this guy in some way represents, it doesn't represent the downfall of Doc's relationship, but it's like, this is what is now. Yeah. Well, no, you're right. He is. He does. He is the kind of guy who is now probably paying Shasta or using Shasta. Maybe not her particularly, but girls like her. He's yeah. taking them, using them, spending money on them, and and so it has replaced what was more of an organic kind of love. And so, yeah, I think that's dead on. Yeah, it's just that that does add an underlying sadness to it that hadn't even really occurred to me yet. You know, just mm-hmm. because this movie does have the layers that I I'm still excited to absorb you know I, I i really i get it i get it now and yeah and i think you're i think you're both you know right talking about talking about how yeah blatnoid would be one of those guys you know there's a scene at the end where you know shasta is revealing how wolfman kind of exploited her and shared her with his powerful friends and told her to go off with some of them if if, if they wanted and i get and, and you know for a fact that Blatnoid is that kind of guy because there's that great scene at the end uh, with Crocker Finway. That it's the scene that uh, it's a scene that Kim pointed out in her episode where he's just like, he took her to a hotel with the lamps, oh, yeah. the gaudy the lamps, lamps. yeah, and that he's the kind of guy that that would pay to have the girl that's the love of your life come to a place with the lamps, with recordings of original cast show tunes playing in the background, and just the the, the gaudiness and decadence of that all of all of that and that and that yeah that there is something so horrifying about doc realizing that in the very root of his dream and his happy happiest moment the thing that's going to ruin life for everyone had already had already dug its tendrils into there like it was it was right there in front of him and he didn't see it because he was chasing shasta but the construct the, the the field of construction was right there ready to pave over everything that was good and god damn if that is not heartbreaking even even when you're watching Martin Short run around in his, his tidy whities there's something so so heartbreaking about that to me. You just reminded me, I didn't pair it with this, but man, just you talking about um, these characters in this way really just makes me think that another guy who could just have walked into the room and been hanging out with Martin Short in this is um, Claire Quilty from Lolita. The more oh, yeah. I think about Peter Sellers' character, the way he plays that, I mean, I feel bad even saying it, but it's one of my favorite characters in all of movies which is awful because he's an awful, uh, you know, basically pedophile type character, but it's the way Peter Sellers plays him that I'm obviously drawn to, not the, not what the character yeah, does, but it's a hilarious performance, but he's so, again, totally banal. It, you know, you wouldn't even know the character's evil until you kind of start to piece together and realize, oh my God, like also in the book, the things they're doing, the kind of parties they're having, I can imagine he's on the ship with Wolfman passing her around and it, you realize, okay, this is a type of... Uh, this is a type of uh, influence that uh, money and power are controlling. You know, I about once an episode, there will be a grenade that goes off that blows my mind, be, which I, I never expect because I've seen this so many times. I, I figure like, nah, I've got this movie totally figured out. To connect Rudy Blatnoid to Claire Quilty <laughs> is so right. And I'm so pissed that that's not what I'm pairing this scene to because I didn't either he though. So <laughs> totally is sellers in Kubrick's Alita, just that bizarre clown figure that also happens to be participating in the most grotesque level of human depravity possible, short of like the counselor style snuff films. Yeah. Hey, maybe he is, who knows? But 
Well, what's yeah. worse than Humpert Humpert? You're like, nothing could be worse than that guy. And then you're like, no, no, Claire Quilty's worse. He's no, just there's funny. Claire Quilty. He's, he's, you know, it's, uh, it's almost what makes him worse. Because he doesn't love her. At least, at least yeah. the, the sickness that is Humpert Humpert least has, thinks he has love in his Thinks he loves heart. her. Yeah, like, he's, he's a Quilty sicko, knows exa- but, yeah. Quilty knows exactly. It yeah. like relishes being a monster. Yeah. And just like, I, I'm still angry that people always overlook. I, I have this, I've, I've told Brian this a few times. There was a, another show that we like, uh, Screen Drafts, where they rank all of Kubrick's films. And I wasn't upset that it didn't make the list. It wasn't even mentioned. And I was like, oh my God. You guys are talking about Kubrick's film works and didn't, no one even said, eh, Lolita didn't make it. And I think it's like maybe one of his most underrated and most important films. And it's just, it's such a good adaptation. And again, it's an adaptation of a very difficult source material. And it's the same way this is. So that is an appearing. This is how our show works. <laughs> we'll talk about a movie for 10 minutes and go, but that's not my official answer. Exactly. <laughs> we, we're, having a, we're having a pure PCP like moment right now. Yeah, but no, you're, you're it's, it's so right that, I think you've hit on something, which is also, which is also when you have a book of, with a certain level of emotional and intellectual and thematic scope, you have to pick the track that you're going to run with. You can't collapse all of it, even if it's a relatively small book. Well, it's not a huge book, and Heron Heights isn't a big book, but you have to pick the track that you want to run on for two hours, two and a half hours max. And I think it is interesting that I think you could say that both Lolita and Inherent Vice are companion films in that their directors had to pick, well, this is the thread I'm going to follow. I can't do all of this. I cannot make a caustic bitter look back at the 1960s and investigate everything that went wrong, but also do a breakup movie and do a PI movie. I can't do all of that. I can do some. And you, you see that best when somebody does it twice. It, it, nothing's more clear. Like when Lolita was remade by Adrian Lyne, I remember going, oh, everyone would go, oh, this is a much more faithful adaptation, much better. And I'd be like, yeah, but it's no. nowhere near as good a movie because well, it didn't get the essence and you're trying it, to adapt essence. Exactly. And I, and I think what people miss and, you know, you don't want to, I think some, it's, it's hard to admit with and not seem crass or like you're missing the point, but Lolita is a very, gorgeous sad tragic novel but it's also hilarious yeah. and what adrian linden is like well what if i just took out all the jokes yeah what if i just and then but when you take out all the jokes it is just a horrible romance yeah, between a middle-aged man and a child it's very bleak yeah the whole story and and while you could argue that yeah maybe the kubrick version lacks the the pathos of humbert humbert and it lacks the pathos of lolita and the sadness of her broken life that you that you you come to see in the in the book it's a better track to pick. It, it's a yeah. it's a superior, and also, I mean, I mean, Kubrick could have picked any thread from that book, and it probably would have been better than an Adrian Lin movie. But that's a that's a whole other podcast. Um, I do like Adrian Lin. I don't want to throw him under. I just don't no, like that. I, I I I like it too. But I mean, come yeah. on, that's not a good movie. And I saw someone yeah. the other day say that that's the superior adaptation, and I just no. it just blew my mind because no. it's it's not a good movie at all. No. It's a show. It's a it's a Showtime sex movie. But <laughs> Unfaithful is a very good movie. <laughs> I like, I like it's unfaithful a lot. Yeah, Fox is a good movie. All right, we're gonna start. We're gonna take a break to some Adrian Lynn double features, really, really quick. We'll, we'll get back we're to nineties yuppie thrillers. Let's go. <laughs> I'm in. Well, I think you'd have to do Color of Night, obviously. Of course, of course. Obviously. Richard Rush, obviously. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Back off. Back off. Back off. But yeah, I, I think that you could you could look at Lolita and and Inherent Vice as very similar films because I do think that PTA did have to pick the thing that spoke to him in this novel. Yeah. I don't think what spoke to him was Vietnam and the, the death of the American dream and the sacrifice of the American spirit. It's just, God damn, you can really miss somebody when you want to, or it was, especially when you don't want to. You can just have someone you can't let go. And that's, that's Doc's predicament. And before we get into our 
our round of double features. There's one more thing I wanted to say about this scene, and you guys can let me know if you feel the same. I love what an anti-detective doc is in this sequence. There's moments where he does well in this film. There's moments where he, he puts stuff together, and whether or not you believe Sword of Liege is really real or is his subconscious, there's moments where she puts things together for him, and he can be a decent detective. But I loved it the first time I saw it, and I love it each time thereafter. I love the portrayal of Doc in this scene is not being any more particularly knowledgeable than the audience itself at this point. He hands the dude a card from an Asian head shop in Gordita Beach as if that would somehow mean anything. Like, like what? I, as if he's hoping that this will just be the key that unlocks things. This guy will see uh, a Chinese character on a, on a card and just suddenly go, you got me. You got me. And when it triggers nothing from Blatnoid, Doc is just left kind of like I think the audience, an audience member would do at this point, just going, he just kind of goes, uh, I don't know, the golden fang <laughs> and, and stares at him because as an audience member, that's all you'd be able to do is like, I don't know. There's, I think that's the bad guy, the golden fang. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it made me think of there's, there's a line that Ryan Johnson had not in the last episode, but just in an interview he did once about brick. And he said, there's this hermetically sealed social world. And you have this phase in the, in the detective movie where the detective is trying different angles of pinging the outside, trying to get in. And the only visual representation I can think of is that it's the sperm trying to get into the egg. The detective is not gathering clues or doing anything clever with a magnifying glass. He's just going around annoying people until one of them says something that leads him to the next person that he can annoy. There's really no plan in the first act of any detective story. And what I think is another interesting part of Inherent Vice, and we see it in this scene, is essentially until the very end of the film when Doc finally lurches into action to pull Koi from the thing, he's locked in this first act detective mode the entire film. The accretion of facts and details and clues never ever for Doc actually add up to all that much that he can discern or understand beyond the fact that he gets he gets the general sense that the golden fang is like in his words to bigfoot the fully fucking weird outfit that kills people it's about all he knows and i i've never seen a film do quite that where the lead character is always as in the dark as the audience we are always on the exact same level of doc's knowledge and he plays it i feel like the way we would, which is weird because you don't think of Doc as a straight man, but he's kind of the straight man in this movie where he's constantly pinging around. He can't remember half the names that he's told, just like we can't. And he's never quite sure how this adds up. He just knows that it does. And I really feel in this scene, you see that where he just goes, I don't know, the golden fang? <laughs> and looks at Blatnoy and just lets that hang there. And it, nothing ever really comes of it either. And just the riskiness of that of, for a director to do that, and just to trust that, and mostly, and actually, most of the audience didn't really roll with it, I don't think, but th just to trust that your movie and your story is good enough to just let that happen, I think is just it's insane. I think that's solid detective work. I, I like <laughs> I like the idea of a detective who kind of goes in and just goes, I know nothing going into this, so <laughs> I've the got best thing card. I can do is hang I've out. Got a card, and I'm just yeah. going to hang out and wait and see if he reveals something because I don't know. And it feels like to me that's actually not a bad way to approach it. But <laughs> the ability to try the, the the confidence that it would take to go, well, I know this head shop in Gordita Beach that's run by an Asian guy, and he gave me a card that's <laughs> not in English. So 
I don't even sure know. it's oriental. Yeah, I don't even he, like Doc doesn't even know if, like what language this is. Yeah. He just sees characters on. He's like, yeah. I'm gonna show up with this card, and I'm just yeah. gonna hope for the best. I'm gonna hope something kicks loose. But he does that all the way through. I mean, he dresses yeah. in the suit, goes to the you know, goes to the wife's house of Wolf Wolfman. You know, every time he well, takes this little thing, he's doing. <laughs> but doing that's my dance. point. Is like. Yeah. He, he, but he never adds it all up to something. He's always in that first act mode of, well, I'm just going to yeah. walk in and maybe they're going to give me something. And you never get the sense he actually ever pulls it together until that scene late in the end where he's in Penny's office reading the file. And that's the one scene that it's like the film literally speeds into like fast forward and skips over. Like it has mm. no interest. Like there's no interest in actually tying this together yeah. whatsoever. It's just, let's just get to the confrontation. Let's just get to it. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I love Doc's goofiness for that, that he'll just walk into a room and be like, mm, the fang? <laughs> that ring bell? Maybe? You got anything? No? Okay. Yeah, you're right. Fine. Fine. <laughs> All right. We'll move on to the next thing and do a little blow. We'll see what happens. <laughs> and then he finds like a little chamber in the back and it's like, oh, this, this sounds like something that gal said. And then he's on to the next thing. Like, it's just never been a detective movie quite like this. Quite yeah. like this. You're totally right. Wow. Speaking of other movies i was talking to brian before the show while we were waiting for elric to come on because he was pulling another power move and <laughs> making us making us wait clearly and it worked it, it, it did i was shaking actually i was shaking and i had to soothe my nerves with some uh, some blow and some jack daniels mm. um one of my fa- i was telling brian that one of my favorite things about the pure cinema podcast is how you will construct double features where Sometimes you'll be talking about a genre and you'll be like, here's two movies from that genre that pair well together. Or you'll be talking about a certain film and you'll be like, here's five films that would pair well with X. And so we wanted to do something like that today where we would pair scenes or pair films, not with inherent vice, but with more with the tone of, I think, this scene. Is that how we want to do it today? Elric seems pensive. That, no, that's how I, I, that was the approach. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get, but yes, I have paired elements of two elements with two different movies from this scene specifically, not Inherent Vice movie. I didn't go with like a detective thing for the overall feel for me. I went for two elements of the scene, but Brian will have also done something radically different because that's how we roll. <laughs> well, it sounds well, like you're going for a movie like this movie sort of, right? I'm guessing. Yeah. I'm talking about Travis now. No. Oh, Travis, gotcha. Um, sort of, kind of. Okay. I, I'll, 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 I'm gonna do the, th- I'm gonna do the pure cinema thing where I'm gonna tell you some picks that aren't my picks. Uh huh. Of course. But p- not picks that would go specifically with this scene. But if I were like, say, if if I were made God, and instead of like making the world a better place to live and and you know curing famine and disease, I would just, if I were given the powers of God, I would just make double features at the new Bev. If nice. I had that power. And an inherent vice double feature that I would love to see. A couple. I would love to see it paired with Darker Than Amber. I would love to see it paired with Cutter's Way. Mm. 
Give this clown enough to cover any damage. You can get it back in a couple hours. Come on. Introducing Alex Cutter. You're kind of sexy. Do you have an appointment? <laughs> hey, Alex, how do I look? Hey, you look like a fat man on a horse, Georgie. Huh? I would oh. love to see it with Cutter's Way. Wow. Um, that is it, great. Because I think it's always a shock when I think, and I think, Elric, you felt the same when you saw this movie. I don't think you were braced for quite how sad this movie is and introspective Inherent Vices. And I think if you pair it with something like Cutter's Way, that really underlines, oh, Jesus, this is just, this is an elegy. It's a funny elegy, but it's, a, it's an elegy. This is a lament. And so I would, I would love to see a, an Inherent Vice Cutter's Way double feature sometime. You can see future. those characters knowing each other too. Exactly. Because mm. doesn't, doesn't Jeff Bridges and, uh, and John Hurt, don't, don't they in that film, they almost seem like Doc and Bigfoot or Doc and Sancho like 10 years later. With, when, once coming, you know, if Inherent Vice is coming into the 70s and all of the horrors that that entails, and Cutter's Way is just those characters walking out the other end so damaged and broken beyond repair and how America is now at that point damaged and broken beyond repair. I, I think that those two movies speak to each other re really, really deeply, both in their use of, of, of humor and their use of, of drama and sadness. And I also think that uh, I could see Shasta Faye ending up a lot like a certain character in Cutter's Way without giving a lot of spoilers in terms of where that character goes. But that, that character feels very much to me like the end point of someone like Shasta Faye Hepworth at the end of the 1970s. And so, yeah, I would, I would love to see if anybody's listening out there that has any power or connection to the new Beverly Cinema whatsoever, including the men in front of me, Cutter's Way, Inherent Vice, make our, that happen. Our power is very limited. <laughs> we, we dream of that same kind of power. <laughs> Jules, if you're listening. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah those the if i was going to do my these aren't my picks picks i would say i would love to see darker than amber i would love to see cutter's way i think those those would be my two big ones to see with this film well one of those uh is is my pick for not this episode but for my our ptm episode so i wasn't going to bring it up here but one of them is my <laughs> actual pick but you didn't speak about it much so i will leave it i because i have a i actually think the two films have a massive thread in common that is uh, partly to do with obsession of of the viewer not the people in that so i will leave that for the rpta episode so i'm not going to touch had, on that one i had a feeling because yeah. every pt episode pt or pta every pcp episode i think elric and my f taste in film overlaps a great deal I, yeah, that's and usually mean. your picks are what there's at least two or three that i got in my head ready to go and then you pick it which is why I was actually terrified to do this lightning round, yeah. not knowing what you were going to pick. Okay. Because I was Our like, shows are on different channels. So I was like, we're, <laughs> but <laughs> I like the Cutter's Way one because Cutter's Way is another movie. I didn't even, that didn't even cross my mind. And it's Me a movie neither. both of us love and it's dead on. Totally. A great pairing. Really very is. different. Both movies about place, you know, with Santa Barbara yeah. in that case. They're Sunshine very, Yeah, very much under the skin of the place. So, but I'll save my comments for uh, Dark and Amber. <laughs> you know, I, thought, <laughs> I thought about bringing it in here, but I thought, no, I'm going to leave it for here. Here I'm going in kind of a, so you're saving your you're saving your A material for your show. I get it. <laughs> uh, power move after power move, and now this. Fine. That, well, that also partially that this scene has very little to do with that one for me. This particular scene, whereas the sure. movie, I think, 
speaks to each other. Well, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll save mine. You guys are the guests. Elric, do you want to go with what, uh, what you have loaded for this scene? Should I do one and then the other, or do you want to knock them both out here? We can do uh, one. Let's oh, do God. the one. Let's do one at a time because let's let's do let's right. purely P, let's go pure PCP with this. Okay, we'll so my the, I did two different ones. Uh, this one, that second one's the one I, it's more fun. But the first one, I instantly think of this when I think of this film. I think of okay, so we have Doctor Blatnoid. If he was around now, as a character, he would definitely be canceled. Right? He's a character who's just straight <laughs> off the bat canceled. Like word would get out, social media would get out. Somebody else who's canceled oh, is the actor James Woods. James Woods is canceled, but James Woods. <laughs> So a fantastic actor uh, and his character, Lenny Brown from The Whoa. Boost. People struggle against smallness all their lives. Let them identify with something big. Uh, Mr. Brown. Call me Lenny. Lenny's the talent in the family. She like the most beautiful girl you ever met. No question. <laughs> no buts about it. You'll have whatever you want. That's a promise. What do you want? Everybody wants a taste of Beverly Hills. Come on, are you with me? Let me see you leave. <laughs> is one of the cr- I've been wanting to pair this on our show oh my God. since the beginning of the show and I've never found a movie to pair it with <laughs> the energy of this crazy movie this crazy Harold Becker movie that when I first saw it I was oh like what God. the it was halfway through and I was like what are they doing the, the performances are pitched at a thousand it's uh, James Woods and Sean Young uh, trying to take over Beverly Hills as fortune tax shelter people and at one point he's losing his mojo and he's just yuppie from hell and then his friend says, well, what about Coke? He'll give you a little boost. And the Coke scenes in this movie are insane. And they both have such a downfall. I mean, it's so, this is one of those weird movies. You're like, where are they pitching this thing? It's like 88. So it's kind of after the main boom of Coke. It's Harold Becker. He's done a lot of good stuff. The Vision Quest, which was uh, something that I know Brian's a big fan. Um, a lot of interesting stuff. I think it's actually a pretty good movie, but the performances are kind of amazing. And it re- instantly, I just think of these guys as friends. I think Lenny Brown, <laughs> character, is hanging out, dealing blow uh, to uh, to the that character of James and you know Sean Young I actually really like Sean Young in this film um it's kind of a tragic the character goes in a tragic place that makes me think of her career a little bit um Mm -hmm. in some ways but I I did not know about this movie if you haven't seen this movie look the trailer you'll be hooked um I did not know that Ben Stein wrote the book that this is based on and it's actually about Quaaludes his book and when they adapted it they're like well we can't do Quaaludes he knew a lot of people in the Quaalude world of 60s and 70s which kind of relates to um this movie but that for the movie they're like oh it's the 80s let's let's go with coke and i'm like oh that's so weird just a weird you know subculture this is the most shocking digression <laughs> this is the most shocking left turn that has ever <laughs> happened on income i did not see this coming i know well you, <laughs> when you when you get my next pick you'll really be- <laughs> I go full, fully left field. But, you know, I, there is something about the energy of this film that I really kind of dig. It's, it's a weird, it's a weird movie. Um, and lo- almost, I mean, what, I think what we do most on our show, if, if we get credit for anything, I would just say trying to keep movies in the conversation that seem to be forgotten along the way. Because this is one I just never hear about. I stumbled upon it on TV like 15 years ago and just kept thinking about it, you know, maybe rewatched a few years ago. And um, it's pretty wild. Not to blow up your egos, I would say a solid quarter of my way too large Blu-ray collection is exclusively films that were mentioned on PCP that wow. I had not heard of before. That's cool. Yeah, like I mean, you do that's... a you do a Kino episode or you do a Twilight Time episode. I'm like, 
all right, I gotta go five. I gotta go buy fifteen more Blu-rays. That, gotta do it. Well, as I tell Brian, a lot of the time at the end of each year, kind of when we get to our discoveries, it's like that's what the show. After the first couple of years, it be, has become for me too. So it's not like I've seen more than you. What it's actually is is I'm running to see all this new stuff probably only minutes before you're getting those same wrecks because the first two years you're doing something like that you're wanting to tell the audience all the cool stuff you've seen in the past yeah and at a certain point you're like i just want to keep finding new stuff and that's that was the shift there but the boost is old school (laughs) but it's also the excess of the 80s and i think it perfectly does summarize what was coming this is the way this is a few years later the wave of what was coming this is the ugliest version of what was to come and yeah i mean woods's character in that film is so blatnoid in the 80s like that that is exactly who rudy and wolfman he's a mixture between like wolfman and blatnoid right because he's he's doing real estate deals tax shelter shit okay i will admit and yeah if they can't if you if the new bev can't get a print (laughs) cutter's way i will take the boost as the b feature with inherent rights i'll take poor man's cutter's way So that's my first one. I, I, okay. I was pairing the drug use as my first. That, would, that pairs very well with Platinoid DDS. All right, Brian, how about you? He's, he's power moving all over the place. I was not ready for that. I was not ready for that. You weren't ready for my boost pick? No, I wasn't. Really? Uh, just hilarious. the idea of pairing the drug. I was like, I actually started to look through drug movies oh, really? um, like 15 minutes before this episode thinking, is there something that I could grab? And I just yeah. couldn't find anything that was going to work. Um, so I went a bit more obvious in terms of my pairing. It was, it was the Martin Short of it, if you will. Okay. And I don't know if this is ground zero for Martin Short cameos like this, uh, but the one that I always remember is from The Big Picture. A student's first film can open some unexpected doors. And the winner is... Nick Chapman for first date. This is Todd Marvin. I'm calling for Alan Hable. Can I push back? I'm, uh, I'm kind of in the middle of something. I wonder if he's already made a deal with somebody else. Now, he's making new contacts. I don't know you. I don't know your work. But I think that you are a very, very talented young man, and I'm never wrong about these things. He's making the big move. Tell me your movie, Nick. He plays the story. agent that uh kevin bacon goes to have lunch with in the big picture that's right well and that's immediately when you said the thousand yard stare i'm like that's exactly what yeah exactly he's literally (laughs) just there's actually a moment where he's kind of (laughs) he's kind of looking over at you don't know what and then he's just like i'm not talking to you it's just (laughs) what the fuck is going on in that scene it is it is absolutely amazing what he's doing again and i feel like that is he's doing somebody and there may even be articles about who he's doing or he's doing a composite uh but he's doing it amazingly well uh and i just i remember the i don't know it's it's not even just an energy this some some unquantifiable unquantifiable thing that he brings to that movie which i think is a fun movie and i think chris guest gets a lot of credit for the you know, post waiting for Guffman and beyond. But I think big picture is actually a really pretty fun little movie uh, that has some good moments and, you know, it's, it's pretty cute. Uh, But it also has a very naive character sort of falling in with a much darker, larger, you know, um, out of his control kind of universe. And so in over his head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just kind of falling sway to the powers that be. 
absolutely. And that's that could work maybe as a pairing. But I was more looking at just the Martin Short side. No, I think that I think his scene in that film works is totally on the wavelength of what he's doing here. Like that, yeah. as like we said that. And it, and by the way, if if people are listening to this and not just laughing at the thought of Martin Short in that stare, this is the wrong episode for you. This is really. <laughs> I mean, if you're the kind of person that when you think of that Mars, I, the Mars attacks face, that 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 angelic, empty-headed smile and stare, if that just doesn't make you start cracking up. Oh, I love it when he pushes the button. Is it in the limo or is it the house where he pushes the button in Mars Attacks and the room changes? And it's all like <laughs> sleazy. It's just like, it's one of the funniest things. I can, I can laugh just thinking about him in that movie. It's, so good. <laughs> it's yeah. basically what we're doing now. <laughs> yeah, so that was the first part of what I'm doing is, is that. So I only came with one because it's my show. I can do whatever I want and I'm, and I'm lazy. And I, and I gave a good one with Coder's Way. So we'll count that as my first one. Uh, and again, God, if if anyone out there has not seen Cutter's yeah. Way, please, please, please. I don't even know if there are any Blu-rays for Twilight, Twilight Time Blu-ray. Twilight Time. I think they burned I through. I don't know if they're sold out now. I, they, well, I thought maybe they did, but who knows? We'll see when Screen Archives picks up the inventory if there's any left. But that's true. If if, if you have not seen Cutter's Way, and you 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 want to see a perfect, soul-destroyingly amazing film about the end of an era with performances so goddamn searing like you it's a cliche to say a movie will haunt you and you will be haunted you will be haunted by cutter's way it is just a devastating film perfect performances all around and one of the all-time and again this is, sounds like hyperbole one of the all-time most shocking endings mm. that you'll ever see now moving forward from that mm-hmm. my pick and i feel like this is so I feel like this is a super obvious on the surface type film to pair with this scene because in the sub If you say long goodbye, I'm walking. <laughs> I told no, Brian, no, no. I said, if you can come out with long goodbye. No, no, I get kind of annoyed when people connect the long goodbye to this movie because yeah, yeah. that's too obvious. I does, John. But this is an obvious on the surface pick to, to, to hook onto this scene, to pair with this scene because the sub, 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 sub genre of Dentistry related films noir is pretty slim. There's basically an hair vice and then there's my pick. But what makes this interesting pairing, I think, is that it stars Martin Short's frequent comic partner, Steve Martin, like Inherent Vice. It has an absolutely insane ensemble cast. You got Steve Martin, Laura Dern, Helen Bottom Carter, you've got Elias Codius, Kevin Bacon, Keith David. Like Vice, it gear shifts from comic lunacy to violent crime film. It also works as kind of an interesting counterpoint to Inherent Vice's more Chandler-esque vision of detective noir by being more of a James Kane horny patsy in over his head film noir. And that is 2001's Nova Kane. Everything seemed picture perfect. Oh. My day is broken up into 15-minute blocks so I can juggle three patients at once. Jean was my fiancé, kind of all-American girl you dream about. On the surface, you could say I had it all. Everything I had always thought I wanted. He's up. No patience. I'm supposed to be here at 7.30 this morning. This morning? Can I ask you something? Go ahead. Do you ever date any of your patients? But you think you're a real bad boy, don't you? 
ever do it in the chair. It all starts with a lie. It goes downhill from there. With Steve Martin. Wow. Anyone remember this film? Am I the only one? Just no, barely. I yeah, I remember it. I remember the trailer so clearly. I've seen it one time and I remember liking it. But man, that, that even you just saying it aloud makes me go, oh, I, I could rewatch that right now. It, it came out, you know, at the tail end of that glut of yeah. late 90s, early 2000s indie crime films that exploded post-Tarantino. But, yeah, and I think that fact, that, that it was part of that saturated, I think, I think, this, I think it came out via Artisan, that, that saturated market, and along with its very, as I said, James Cain-styled, super low-stakes storyline, it basically left the film open to being dismissed by critics and audiences at the time. But uh, I, I, re I rewatched it this weekend and it's so refreshing because I was, I kind of, that's the film I was expecting was that kind of post Tarantino crime, indie crime flick. It's so not riffing on those nineties tropes at all. This is a pure, the postman always rings twice sap film noir movie. It's, it's, it's you've got Steve Martin, playing the straight man which probably also confused audiences at the time but he's like martin short in this film he's playing against type he doesn't have a single joke in the movie and in the film he plays a wealthy dentist he's got a perfect wife a perfect practice and a perfect fiance in the form of dental hygienist laura dern and as one does he falls into lust with this apparent femme fatale played by helena bottom carter who's still in full-on marla singer fight club mode <laughs> And she shows up to his office requiring a root canal one day. And before he can quite track what's happened, his entire practice's narcotic sto storage is stolen and sold on the street. Uh, Scott Kahn keeps showing up to kick his ass. His brother keeps trying to paint his house blood red. A dead body shows up. And Keith David shows up as a detective partnered with Kevin Bacon, who's playing an actor researching being a cop for a cop movie. And they're like lukewarmly nipping at his heels and it's all fun. It's 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 not perfect. It's like a good three star small stakes movie. It's a That's a good Bigfoot combination, though, with Bigfoot. Yeah, the like cop who acts. Oh, you know? I, oh my God! You listen, yeah. listen to you saving me here because I had not even, <laughs> I had not even. But yeah, it's totally. Yeah, you got Bigfoot wanting to be a star, wanting his own Cielo drive so that he can be more than an extra on Adam Twelve, and you got Kevin Bacon playing an actor trying to be a cop, and. It's, it's just a great, like I said, the postman always rings twice, James Kane type of noir. And what, what also really connects it to Inherent Vice to me is I'm not going to get any more spoilery for a 19-year-old film, but it, 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 it gets really tricky. There are some fun third act twists that remind me of Vice a bit in that they, Nova Kane takes the twists that you thought were gonna be the big reveals. It's one of those movies that halfway through, you're feeling pretty smug, like I know what the twist is gonna be. It's gonna be her and him secretly did this thing and that's gonna be the reveal. I'm really smart. What the movie does is about halfway takes what you thought was gonna happen. The big twist is that the twist that you thought was the twist isn't the twist. Throws that out the window and you reveal that the, it's revealed that the entire movie was about something else altogether. And which I think is much the case with Inherent Vice. You get to the end, you're like, oh, this whole plot was about just getting this family back together. It's never about the girl. Mm. And Nova Kane is very much like that. It's nowhere near the film Vices, but it's if I would if I were able to somehow turn Rudy Blatnoid's scene into a whole film, I would love to see Martin Short and Steve Martin playing dentists side by side. One totally mad with power and lust, the other totally ill-equipped to deal with either madness 
or lust plus after little shop of horrors it's nice to see steve martin play a dentist one more time if that's your... <laughs> so yeah that would be my 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 melding would be inherent this scene of inherent vice and 2001's nova king nice which i highly awesome. recommend uh, well, the one thing the office scene doesn't have is locusts, so that's why I paired it with Exorcist 2. I just <laughs> I figured, why not pair it with the thing lacking? Uh, shout out to Jim Hempel. Um, we love you. Uh, but no, I went, I went for saying, I wanted to have one more hard-hitting kind of noir, something darker uh, a pairing. So I, I was, in terms of Martin Short, it's hard to pair and find that hard-hitting movie. So I went with Pure Luck. Somewhere on the Mexican Riviera, a beautiful heiress has been kidnapped. To find her, they'll need the best team in the business. He has the experience, but his regular partner wasn't available. So they found someone even more lethal to himself. Ow. If you send somebody after her who's as unlucky as she is, he could literally stumble onto her. Oh, this is some kind of joke or something. At the age of three, He's almost strangled by the cord from some draperies. Mr. Proctor is here, sir. I want you to go to Mexico and look for my daughter. This man has been hit by lightning twice. Once while inside a movie theater. 1991, which is uh, him being recast as the detective character, but he's actually an accountant. And I thought of this movie, Brian knows, I actually never do this on our show. I hardly ever pick comedies. But this feels this like a Brian pick. Exactly. This is the first thing, I swear to God, this is the first thing that came into my mind. And oh, I yeah. haven't seen this movie in 20 years. And I sat down and watched it and liked it even more than what I did back then. Uh, no, it actually had quite a few, what's fun about it. And I think there's something about the universe when you start making pairings is like, like Inherent Vice, you start to see similarities where there are none. But sure, you start to sure. discover them. And I found quite a few in this. Um, so it is such an absurd movie. And Martin Short's in a way playing a straight character, but the situations he's been uh, kind of creating are so over the top. So it's literally a, uh, a wealthy businessman who has a boat that looks exactly like the Golden Fang on his table. Uh, the, the dad of the missing girl has a daughter who is the unluckiest woman on earth. Every time she, you know, she takes a flight, her bag gets lost. She gets to Mexico. Uh, she falls out a window and almost dies, bounces off something, loses her uh, consciousness is, you know, is suddenly has amnesia and is walking the streets of Mexico and then is kidnapped. She's just really unlucky. It's very over the top. So Harry Shearer comes into the story. And again, it's one of these movies you're like, why is Harry Shearer in this movie? <laughs> Suddenly Harry Shearer goes to the guy, all right, I know you've been investigating this for three weeks and have come up short finding her. Here's my feeling. There's a guy in accounting <laughs> who I think would make a great detective because he is the, has the worst luck of anyone I've ever met. And the guy's like, well, what does that come to me? I think that if you take someone with the worst luck ever and you place them to go down and take the same route as your daughter, maybe the same terrible things that happened to her will happen to him and somehow will stumble upon her. So the whole concept of this is, is so ludicrous, but it is a detective <laughs> story, which I think is really fun. Um, so of course, Danny Glover is his partner, the straight-laced detective who's pretending to be the assistant. Martin Short goes down to Mexico and uh, when they say hilarity ensues, that's only partially true here. Anyway, um, it's you know, occasionally funny, <laughs> occasionally kind of, kind of on the nose. Um, but there are some moments in the, sh uh, Sheila Kelly's the, the woman. There are a few moments that I thought were really genuinely funny. 
uh, I think I've got a new favorite line in all of movies where he's just stuck somewhere and suddenly he starts sinking and Martin Short just goes, there's no quicksand in Mexico. And I'm like, that is a great line. <laughs> like he just starts <laughs> sinking in quicksand. And it's like, he's like, of all the things. Um, but a couple, of, a couple of one gag though, this is going to blow your mind and I'm going to put it all in. PTA, if he's listening or if he ends up coming on, I am convinced this is one of the reasons he cast him, is this movie. There is a gag in this movie where Martin Short, there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a native person in a bed who suffered terrible bruising who had seen the woman at some point. Martin Short shows a photo of her that you never see, and the guy starts screaming. It is exactly, exactly, even the way it's framed, like the Jenna Malone uh, walking Phoenix moment, which is my favorite moment in the whole film. It's the best reaction shot I think I've ever seen. Um, and, and I couldn't believe it. I got to the end of the, it was towards the end of the movie. And it made me think it's, it's either that or that they're both kind of towards Bunuel. Like it has that, it feels yeah. like, um, uh, what's the really random one? Is obscure object? No, it's the one, um, there's one before that, uh, after discreet charm, where it's a random obscure moment after obscure moment. I almost know, no main character in the movie. It just keeps moving from crazy sequence to say crazy sequence. And I know there's a part where somebody opens a box and there's some pornography in it and the person just looks at it and you never see what's inside it. And it reminded me of that, but it was kind of amazing to see this moment done exactly the same way in this crazy over the top 90, 91 comedy uh, that probably everyone has purposely forgotten <laughs> about. And I can see why, but actually a lot of the gags and there is a gag, his first fat suit gag, and it's utterly brilliant. Like he is allergic. Is it the movie to bees. gets like stung like a bee? Stung He's like allergic to bees, and he misses it, and then he gets on the on the in, the in the plane, and then he just starts blowing up. And every time Danny Glover turns back, it's worse. And there, it is actually pretty genuinely funny. But I think and this the, one deserves revisiting. And I think I think it would actually the reason sometimes these movies pair best with something like Inherent Vice for real as a double feature is because it's not the same thing. You know, you're yeah. not just watching the same movie twice, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood would be a little hard because of the similarities, maybe in terms of maybe occasionally in tone. It's too much. Or, it's too much. Yeah. Whereas this would be like, what am I, you know, anyway. Pure you, want the, you want doubles that will have a conversation with each, with each other, not parrot the same lines back. And forth. But I got to <laughs> yeah. say, I got to say, one of the reasons why I am a fan of Pure Cinema Podcast is that where else are you going to hear someone connect Bunuel with pure fucking luck? <laughs> That's how we roll. <laughs> right, uh, and you know what? You know, we've been told, you know, you don't ask Paul questions like, what does this mean? What does this mean? Where did this come yeah. from? But if the opportunity comes, the only question I will ask him now is not what does this mean? Yeah. Not what does, what is the light that's coming in from the back of the car in the final yeah. scene? What is the nature of the sex scene? Is sort of Lige real? All of these questions go out the window. And when I'm going to look him in the eye and go, I want you to tell me if you've ever seen a movie called Pure Luck. Yeah. <laughs> you well, you know that, what I you, you know what I didn't know. I, I had no idea that this is a remake of a major major French film Le Chier, Le Herve, I guess it would be with if you don't pronounce really? the eight, Le Herve from eighty one by the person who wrote The Birdcage and all those movies. So this was a major wow. Depardieu film, and I had no idea when I watched it. So now it actually makes me wonder if that's probably actually a really good comedy sorry, from eighty one. So it's like a decade later. Um, I did not know that when I uh, watched it. You know, you never know what you're going to get mm. on Increment Vice, and that includes myself. And I know so much more now about pure luck than I ever expected <laughs> you know? to know going into this thing. Watch it tonight. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brian. Um, well, because he did a Brian, um, I'm going to just gonna throw go in. Elric? Well, no, no, no. I'm going to throw in a quick Brian here Good. before I go with my much more 
obvious, you know, pick. There's a movie I love, but um, I've talked about it on Pure Cinema a little bit. Uh, Clean Slate. M. L. Pogue. Whenever you go to sleep, you lose your memory. Whatever you do, don't panic. What? Imagine every morning you wake up, you can't remember who you are. Your name is M. L. Pogue. Who your loved ones are. Are you my dog? Fido. Hey, Spock. Rusty. <laughs> or for that matter, <laughs> who the hell any of these people are. Seen all your faces here today, uh, John and Susan and Mary and, and Fred and Ethel and Little Ricky and... With Dana Carvey. I like that one too. I'm not kidding. His, I love that. Uh, oh my his, God. his dog with a depth perception problem is one of my favorite gags. Great bit. So yeah, for those who don't know, it's the proto Memento comedy version. <laughs> yeah. Before Memento ever you oh. know happens, uh, Dana Carvey plays a detective who has lost his short term memory, and he uses a tape recorder in the morning to remind himself who he is, what's going on, and yep. he has to navigate that along with a murder mystery that's happening and it's a movie that people don't talk about um and i do think it's fun <laughs> so you could do a triple with uh if you want to go comedy with uh inherent pure luck pure <laughs> i'll admit that that clean slate's an actually better movie than pure luck like my memory of clean slate is that it's like really good like has yeah. lots of great gags but um like they they mostly work in that film they mostly do yeah. yeah, I mean, no insult to uh, Elric's pick, but that would be a precipitous quality drop to yeah. slip from Inherit Vice to Pure Luck, then bounce back to Clean Slate. <laughs> that would, that would, that would well, definitely I mean, be taking your your audience on a journey. That would be that. Yeah, sure. that's <laughs> what they're asking for. Yeah, uh, Pure Luck might be the midnight slot movie in Could that triple feature. Yeah. That would be the midnight play. Oh, that's like great! It. Pure Luck is a midnight might, movie. That that's gotta happen. Yeah, Quentin, that, are you listening? Do you hear this? Yeah, you, you catching this, buddy? Um, but then, you know, my, I guess now it's going to seem boring pick. Is another <laughs> Anything you could say right now. We'll say <laughs> Nothing's topping clean slate. Uh, well, or pure luck, uh, yeah. which I'm so glad he, we talked about it and I think he was hesitant. I'm like, you gotta, go, <laughs> you gotta go I mean, in no, with that's, pure that's, luck. That's, that's the perfect pick. That's I was perfect. hesitant until I rewatched it. Once I rewatched it, I felt pretty good. About that's good. It. Like all I can think of now is that, the proto Jiminy Glick fat face. Yeah. Beasting oh, yeah. version of Martin yep. Short smiling in the airplane. Or something like, yeah, God. Oh man! I think I am going to go home tonight and watch. Yeah, oh, you should. Um, but you know, one of the great '70s detective films is Night Moves. Well, I think Harry would like me to leave. Well, I don't think that's necessary. I think Harry thinks it is. Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. Gene Hackman is Harry Mosby. Hello, Harry. In Night Moves. Well, come on, take a swing at me, Harry, the way Sam Spade would. He's a private investigator. My daughter, Delhi. Would you believe Delilah? Well, she's gone. How long gone? Two weeks. Go find her. Making a living. Well, let's say 125 a day in legitimate expenses. From other people's lives. You can get cheaper. Can I get better? You're hired. Making a mess of his own. God, you're really prime, Ellen. You know that? I can't you screw another guy and you attack my lifestyle. Your lifestyle has nothing to do with it. Night moves. You already kind of mentioned it. Oh. And I really do. I was rewatching the beginning of it. It doesn't have the humor, um, but it does have the sadness, you know, mm. in, in some ways that 
inherent has and it's got you know i mean a very um superficially you know story of a missing girl kind of scenario sure. kind of thing happening that opens up to a large much larger much larger world of conspiracy and corruption yeah and and i don't know there's just something about the two of them i mean i it's obvious to me too because it's one of my favorite films of all time and another yeah. film that each time i've watched it i've gotten more and more in love with it and i feel that happening with inherent so uh, I kind of think it'd be fun to see, I don't know, somebody seeing both for the first time might not be as sad, although Night Moves is fucking amazing. Um, but I will even admit that I, because the mystery at the center of it is, it's not unsolvable by any means at all, but at the first time I watched it, I was like, I just don't know what the fuck it's, happened. It's so obliquely presented. You're like, so there's, they're smuggling art stuff? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. That, is that what, Maybe. Yeah, maybe, exactly. It might be a bit information overload or obscure information overload if it's a double feature you're seeing for the first time. I, I might not recommend walking into that cold, that yeah. double cold. But no, I think that's a that's an amazing double. It's like the thing that gets kind of on my nerves when people keep going, well, it's a long goodbye. It's a long goodbye. It's a long goodbye. Like, no, no, no. That's, that's not really anything like Inherent Vice at all. And something like Night Moves, I think, kind of like Cutter's Way is actually much closer to the the sad half of the tone yeah of an air advice in both in both how they're so kind of inscrutable so like, much of the time your luck <laughs> <laughs> much, so much, much i tried much to tie like, that in much so like much the inscrutable melancholy. motivations yeah the melancholy of danny glover in that film he's so sad that Riggs isn't there it's just <laughs> and they, the that's even the ad campaign i swear to god it's got danny glover oh, are you serious? It, they, they wanted a detective but his partner was busy and it, it has oh, rigs cut out and then martin shirt replaces oh, like one of the worst commercials oh um, my god but if we're gonna have a night like this so this night goes we watch inherent we watch <laughs> novocaine we watch pure luck we watch clean slate then you put on night moves then the night doesn't end because anytime night moves plays you have to end with an eric bromer film period <laughs> because if you don't hit it's that like gag if you don't hit that exactly. gag, i think that would be the greatest double feature is it's night moves and in any eric bromer any film. any literally any eric doesn't bromer matter <laughs> you can imagine half the audience walking out just because of that so. god our jokes are getting so obscure right now know, let's go back let's go back to the pure luck material let's bring <laughs> exactly. let's, let's bring them back in with the pure luck material come oh, on oh yeah but no, no, the night moves. God, that that's that. I, I I agree. I think that would be a much better '70s detective pairing. Maybe, maybe one, of, maybe one of the best possible '70s detective pairings with Inherent Vice would be something like Night Moves, which I actually do think it's got it's got jokes. It's got it's no, yeah. There's some humor. The, the Romer joke is great, and then like <laughs> there's there's also that line where like uh, isn't that's I that's the, I believe that's the film. I, I don't think I'm thinking of this one. I think I'm thinking of Night Moves, where like uh, they're looking at. Um, a beautiful young lady a, a, a teenager and one guy says god there ought to be a law against it and and doesn't uh mosby go there is like, <laughs> that, like it's it's that level of humor it's that very yeah. world weary yeah. sad yeah. almost like just chinatown depressed humor like the gallows humor of something like which that. a lot of detective movies have i mean that's what i love about so many so many because detectives aren't cops like that's the difference a private detective always have this other burnt out quality that i am much more interested in and i think we all are you know those characters there's something much more uh, like us than somebody who's say a captain on a police force which you yeah. can't really identify with you know well in which you you have to be trained for right. and you do, you're right it is it is a quality of like what led them here? You know, Harry Mosby, yeah. ex-football player, is a fucking... <laughs> so, you know, I mean, like, it could be anybody, you know? Yeah. And, just, and, and it's, it's their outsider nature because they're outside of all the systemic inequities and corruption of the system that they're also trying to aid. 
because yeah. you know they more or less are all on the same side of the law more or less <laughs> and but they're watching this force that's supposed to be a force of good and almost invariably one of the bad guys or some of so much of the inequity and the ineffectual nature of goodness is located in the bureaucracy of the police that they're trying to work with or trying to get around or trying to motivate. And you see that in here. If I see that and I move to Chinatown, that's such, that's such part of it. It's just the detective is always going to be a little bit to the left. He's always going to be a little bit on the, or she will always be a little bit on the outside mm-hmm. of that power structure sitting there doing their best with their little card with a Chinese head shop, <laughs> hoping that that'll be enough to get the, to get the good guys motivated. Yeah, man. All right. Oh my God, guys. I don't know how to top that. I don't know how to top inherent vice, clean slate, pure luck, triple feature, or, or as Elwerk said, I guess we're doing an all night marathon now where you're going inherent vice, Novocaine, pure luck, clean slate, then night moves, then an Eric Romer film. And then that three is- fugitives. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> where do we end with Clifford? Where do we go? Where do we take this Martin short? Night? Okay. If you're going to end it, then you got to end it with Clifford because Clifford is like a bullet from a gun. That will wake anyone up. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're doing like an all night marathon, yeah. if you're doing an all night marathon, you do the depravity that is Clifford, which is a, <laughs> maybe the most disturbing film of the 1990s. Like, absolutely just surreal disturbing horror film Talk about when well influence when you get home and watch pure luck you will you will wonder when he bursts into the scene he has a great entry because the guy harry sherry comes in before and takes one leg off a chair and says the guy's like why are you taking that leg off the chair he goes just trust me he walks in and he goes you can sit in any chair you want and there's like 30 seats of course he ends up picking the chair uh he's got like weird red hair and it's because he was acting in Clifford at that moment and had needed red hair. And that's why in pure luck, he also has red hair. So these are the facts that if you're a detective like us, (laughs) if you're a doc like us, (laughs) this is the kind of hard hitting shit you're going to get both on increment vice and pure cinema podcast. If you wanted that pure luck trivia in your life, (laughs) I, I, I really never thought I would I would be thinking this much about pure luck in <laughs> ever since I was like ten or twelve or whenever it was and yeah. it played on HBO every three hours. That's our job. That's what we're here for. <laughs> wow. And I love that you're still here defending pure luck as you're like you're like, no, no, this is a great set set piece at the beginning. It takes the leg off a chair. Like you're still selling it. There's there's still there's still gems in there. Gems in there. <laughs> they don't they don't all land. <laughs> I'm glad we kept this to a type 45, guys. We, we it's, <laughs> we it's the pure cinema way. We did good we did, at keeping this good, tight. We did a good job as we're all sitting here blurry. No, t- no tangents. Good job. Good job. Tight 45. Yeah. High and tight. Yeah. All right. Good. God damn. All right. Well, I am gonna go home, and I am gonna watch. I, I'm gonna. No, I'm not. I'm. I'll watch the trailer. <laughs> go, go watch Eric Rome when you uh, <laughs> yeah. okay. take a nap. Oh my God! I will watch it. I'll give you that. I'll watch Clean Slate again. That's a good movie, and I highly recommend everybody try out Novocaine. Try out Cutter's Way. I guess if you've got time, we're under quarantine. Watch Pure Luck. It, it sounds, <laughs> I, it, know, it sounds I, like a laugh. It sounds like there's some. Laughs. I think. I think. Give it a start. Start in. You'll see <laughs> if you want to stick with it. <laughs> give it give it 15 minutes if you might yeah. you might find yourself hanging out with it why yeah, not give it, why give not it, give it 45 <laughs> the first joke takes a while <laughs> it takes a while to land you gotta you know 45 minutes like the link hey, you know? so give it time yeah. give it time. oh boy oh boy <laughs> okay <Yeah. Whew. laughs> we have fun we do 
on that note and you know what hey it's a martin short episode there needs to be some laughter this is a dark time we need to laugh it's we fun need to all laugh. take off our pants and run away from the microphones right now you're right. wearing that's pants that's how we, you're well, wearing you're, pants you're right. no. it's quarantine no one's wow Come you on. are more professional than i sir Look at hell you. no exactly yeah on that note guys thank you so much for indulging me in my my deep deep rooted unsettling obsession with this film thank you for coming on today tell everyone individually where they can find your stuff all right go ahead you love this uh i am <laughs> at rupert pupkin um making shit up now that's not, that's not even his at i don't even know i can't keep up with all his aliases um, that's right mm-hmm uh, but um, I'm just my name. It's at Albert Kane on um, what is it, Twitter? That's probably the place I'm most most active. Not so much on Instagram. It's just weird, you know. And you can online. see uh, you can you can also find Elric on um, Letterboxd, where he gave a bullshit four stars instead of five to Inherent Vice. I saw. I, I saw almost gave did. it four and a half, and then I thought oh to myself, God. I gotta wait a little longer. Jesus. I'm at four and a half, but I can feel it cr- creeping up to yeah. five. It's it's an evolution. Wait, it's probably half a star each screening. So, God, it's it's the it's the favorites of the two thousand tens all over again. <laughs> Me screaming oh, into the night, son of a bitch! Really? Tore the scab right off. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Brian. How about yourself? Uh, Where can yeah. we find you? <laughs> My movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm so Bob. disappointed in both of you. Right now. <laughs> I don't even care. Just tell them where they can find your shit. I'm cutting. Oh out. fucking Christ! Uh, <laughs> I'm at Bob Freelander on Twitter. That's my most active thing. I'm at Rupert Pupkin Speaks on Instagram. Um, I have just at just this pod. We're at Pure Cinema Pod. We're all over the place. We do a lot of a lot on the Twitters. We talk a lot there. And I, despite despite how you continue continue to just pull off my fingernails and put in little bamboo shards of hate <laughs> with your four stars and your four and a half stars uh, for this film, which is so beautiful and so lovely. I appreciate everything that you guys do for the world of film. You guys have turned me on to so many movies that I just love and absolutely adore, including, including in one of your very first episodes, a little movie called Cutter's Way, which I had not watched. How great. That's And I didn't think I was going to like just from the trailer. I was like, I don't, he's riding a horse. I don't get it. I'm out. And that, that, God, it's the, what a gift. What a gift that movie is. And so what a gift your guys' show is because it's constantly just rat-a-tat-tatting movies that you've never heard of or movies that you have and you haven't given a chance to. It's, it's a wonderful show. And, hey, every once in a while you get, uh, you get some nobody like Quentin Tarantino to come on and talk about kung fu movies for two and a half hours. I mean, if that's your thing, if that's interesting to anybody at all, <laughs> I guess. So it's decent enough, decent enough. But yeah, Pure Cinema Podcast, wonderful show. Brian, Elric, thanks again for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for the recommendations. I will definitely do Clean Slate. I will probably do a tight 30 with, uh, with Pure Luck. At least, at least, I might fast forward to the end for the, for the yeah. picture sequence. You got to get to the picture sequence. Just you personally, I, because I, of your I, I am so curious now. Like, that is actually, we're joking, that's actually going to haunt me now. And if I do meet PTA, that's going to be the only stupid guy I remember head. in that moment. I'm just going to blurt it out by yeah. accident. I'm, I'm going to tell myself not to. Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't well, the fun thing, the thing is, I haven't read enough about this, but we all know, you know for a fact, there's going to be a movie of Martin Short's that he must just love. Like, it's yeah. the same with Adam yeah. Sandler. I don't know which one it is. It could, could be, be a luck. <laughs> And, that and that's the thing is sometimes his taste is a little yeah. like you, you see a PTA movie and you think he's watching the, his wall is lined with nothing but criterion spines. Yeah. And then he's like, happy Gilmore, man. 
gets yeah. to me or uh, Big Daddy when he cries over the kid. I don't know, man. Yeah, no, it's, that, yeah. that hurts my heart. And that means, could, he's, totally... that means he's really in our heart as a pure cinema type <laughs> cinephile <laughs> because, you know, I can see all just... Eric Romer. <laughs> exactly. I, mean, I can yeah. see him getting emotional. Man, have you seen have you seen Pure Luck? The way he tries? <laughs> Can't even get the right chair at the beginning? Man, that's oh. Yeah, we're all him. We're all him every day. <laughs> we're all yep. him. You know? That's how we're gonna end. We're all Martin Short. We're all him. We're all what a what a what a that that that's the sentiment, Tim. We are. That's all, your existential out, right? We there. are all fat-faced Martin Short, stung by a bee, can't sit in a chair. And that's, we could all use a little boost. You know, we could all use a little hit, a little taste. <laughs> oh my God! One okay. I forgot. I had to trade out. We could have gotten out of there, but I gotta say, uh, you also have a good uh, Jimmy Woods double feature with the boost and Night Moves. Oh, mm, yep. Boom, yeah. boom, boom, boom. Doesn't yeah. it say, yeah, I mean, this is a different podcast, but I, I think it's such a bummer when these actors in their personal life get themselves in trouble, but then you go looking at the work. I, I look at James Woods' work in the 80s. I go, like, there's, there's just almost no one who was as on fire as he was during that period because he's just, he's the perfect there's kind of scumbag. There's yeah, there's an energy and, he, and he's no really one had. He's really you great. Watch some, but... You watch something like Cop, the mm. level of sadness that he's willing yeah. to like throw on the screen. Yeah. I know we were supposed to end this episode like an hour and 25 no. minutes ago, but God James damn it. Woods, yeah. That's another one. Go watch Cop. Everybody go home and watch Cop tonight. You go home and watch that. Cop and then unfollow him on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. That's the order of events. Well, are you already following? Yeah, if you're already yeah, following, probably not now. Unfollow, unfollow Jimmy. Sometimes they'll pop back up, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you want a good Jimmy Woods double feature, I guess the boost and night move, that's, that's, try, give that right. a try. And then watch him do the Bronson thing with the cop or with cop yeah. and then take a good shower after and don't think about him again for a while. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then remember, remember as, as we fade out tonight, remember we are, we are all Martin Short. We are all Martin Short. Thanks guys. Thank you for coming on tonight. Thanks everybody for listening. Right. And please join us next time where myself and a very special guest are going to meet Miss Japonica Finway. And here was Doc on the Natch, caught in a low-level bummer he couldn't find a way out of about how the psychedelic 60s, this little parenthesis of light, might close after all and all be lost, taken back into darkness. That's a line from Inherent Vice, the novel. And here's our wayward host, thinking about it a lot these days, as the little parenthesis of light left in 2020 America seems slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. If ever there was a reason to keep on keeping on as Pinchon's little parenthesis of light gets smaller and smaller, it's to fight the good fight against those little kid blues for as long as possible. For the world, for a country, for a family, or maybe just for one little kid that deserves better. We know Doc can pull that off, but can we? That's the question, all right. I guess we'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.